You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. To some, it was the fulfillment of a dream. To others, it was an instrument of destruction. A creation that could change the course of history. It was stolen from my factory. Where's the package? Tell the president. Tell me exactly why this merchandise is so important to the feds. It's a rocket. A rocket? What? What's the matter? I don't know. There's something under the seat. Oh, my. What do we got here? What are you supposed to do? Is a bomb or something? No. I wouldn't touch that if I were you. How do I look? Like a hood ornament. Stand clear. Are you trying to kill yourself? I like it. Uh-oh, we got company. You steer, I'll push. For what? I will not rocket, Eddie. Not next week, not tomorrow. Now. Keep your eyes open for this dame. Jenny's in trouble. <gasps> They're working for a Nazi agent. With an army equipped with these, you could rule the world. Cliff! You touch one hair on her head, I swear I'll... <laughs> We've got the girl. The rocket will come to us. I love her, Peeve. Does she know that? She's gonna find out. Let him have it! Hand over the rocket! The Rocketeer. Go get him, kid. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rob St. Mary. She packed my bags last night, pre-flight. Also back with us this week is Mr. Chris Stashu. Hey, how's it going, guys? This week we are looking at the 1991 film from Joe Johnston, The Rocketeer. Based on the comic book by Dave Stevens, The Rocketeer was adapted by Paul DeMeo and Danny Bilson and stars Billy Campbell as Cliff Secord, a stunt pilot who finds a jetpack invented by Howard Hughes, and helps defeat a Nazi plan that would help them win the war. Now, we are going to be getting into some major spoiler territory on this episode, so if you haven't seen The Rocketeer, and unfortunately there was a time when not a lot of people had seen The Rocketeer, I would definitely say go ahead, turn us off, track down the movie, and come back to us after you've seen the film. Then listen to the podcast, and enjoy! So, Chris, as our guest this week, when was the first time you saw The Rocketeer, and what did you think? Okay, so I'm going to completely date myself here. Uh, I saw The Rocketeer when I was a kid growing up. Uh, I had, oh man, I had The Rocketeer game for my computer, which was on those giant floppy disks. I had all sorts of Rocketeer stuff. Uh, And I remember seeing it as a kid and just being completely taken by it. In the 90s, Comic book movies weren't very well done or even made in in the kind of mass quantity that they are now. Uh, I saw it and I thought it was just, you know, as a kid, obviously, it was I wanted to be the Rocketeer as a kid. Just, let's just put it that way. It had that kind of effect on me. I did not see the Rocketeer. 
uh, when I was a kid. I think I saw part of it at some point because I remember Timothy Dalton and the whole kind of like Errol Flynn kind of thing he's got going on. And uh, I will admit that I have a certain something for uh, Jennifer Conley. doesn't matter what era. She kind of does it for me. So um, I saw it, but it had been years and just had a chance to rewatch it in the past week. And I'd say it was a pleasant experience and better than I thought from what I remember. And in a lot of ways, I think that is um, not really a stereotypical Walt Disney picture picture, which we'll get into that uh, as we go. I don't remember when I first saw The Rocketeer. The Rocketeer was playing at the movie theater where I worked when I was a teenager, late teens. And I remember the poster for it. I remember one of the managers was Gaga for it. He just loved this movie and was really into it. And I remember doing a lot of aisle checks on it. So I saw big chunks in the movie quite a bit. Uh, And, of course, you see that last, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes before the credits because you would just kind of want to kill time before the credits start. So you hang out in the back of the theater and you're just waiting and watching and enjoying usually and then uh, get to enjoy the credits theme as you're cleaning up the theater and waiting for people to leave so you can get to it. So, yeah, I don't remember when the first time I saw it was, but I definitely enjoyed it when I finally sat down to see it. And then over the years, I just kind of have grown to appreciate it a little bit more as uh, time has worn on. It's a very quaint film. It's got some great effects to it. A lot of practical effects, a lot of stuff that don't look like effects. And uh, it was pretty remarkable. And I like the way that it blends the real history and the Hollywood and all this kind of stuff with, you know, some of these fictional characters. I think what really kind of sparked this one for me was, well, when we talked with Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo before, and then also seeing the documentary on Betty Page that we covered a few, gosh, probably about a year or more ago, and not realizing I had heard that the, I think her name, what is her name, uh, Jenny in this one, that her character was based off of Betty Page, and I'd never actually seen the Dave Stevens comic. And so then when I did, I was like, oh, yeah, all right. So now I have to track down the comic, enjoy the comic, and really got into the movie even a little bit more after having read the original version of it. So I was very thankful for that. No, but in the comic, her name is Betty. In the comic, her name is Betty, and in the comic, she is the spitting image of Betty Page. Right. And she is a pinup model, so she is totally Betty Page. And man, Mr. Stevens definitely knew how to draw Betty Page. She was almost 3D in that comic book. And he ended up having a, a very well known relationship with her later in life after she saw that uh, that character was based off of her. But yeah, I love this whole idea of how he would have like Rondo Hatton in there, and then he was making allusions to Doc Savage, and there was a sequel story, I think it's like Cliff's Cliff's New York Adventure, and there's a character who's very Lamont Cranston, very much the shadow, uh, though they never come out and say it outright, but, you know, they give you so many things like, you know, the profile, all these kind of, you know, shadow-esque kind of things where it's like, oh, okay. A nod's as good as a wink to a blind bat. Very clever, very clever stuff. And then got the cast of the Rocketeer movie 
was just phenomenal. I mean, this is stacked full of character actors who I love. So all the way down the line, I mean, we've got our old friend William Saunderson in here, John Polito. There's just so many great faces. Ed Lauder, I mean, great, great folks. And then all the way up the line with Alan Arkin, you know, the third banana as it was. And uh, Timothy Dalton doing a great job in this. And I know a lot of people slag on Timothy Dalton all the time because of those horrible Bond movies that he was in. But I really don't think it was his fault that the movies were horrible. I think he would have been a great Bond had he had the scripts to work with. And I definitely think they were cheaping out around this time of the Bond series when he was in them. Well, the first Bond film that I ever saw in a theater was the Timothy Dalton Bond. I remember going with my mom to see The Living Daylights. Which had an amazing Duran Duran song, if memory serves. No, you're right. <laughs> and I think it was one of the first film uh, appearances by Benicio Del Toro in that film, but I don't really remember if he was in that or not, or if it was an implanted memory. That was the second film appearance, I believe. I just lost a trivia question on this the other day. The first one was Big Top Pee Wee, so I was so close. <laughs> Just FYI. And then Paul Sorvino, Terry O'Quinn. I mean, just... One of the things that I really like about it is, and we've talked about this before, my love of the Indiana Jones films. And I think that sort of the Rocketeer for me sits in that sweet spot of sort of 30s design. And there's a lot of those, uh, what I'll call mid-tones. You know, there's a lot of maroons, there's a lot of browns, um, things like that. It's uh, like deco design i mean in terms of his head and you know the the helmet and the in the in the pack and everything i mean everything is very of that era and that's sort of an era that i really like in terms of design and was sort of attracted to with the indiana jones films and i think it really works here and there's even i think a stylization to the acting to a certain extent where some of the dialogue and some of the acting by some of the actors feels like they're trying to tap into that like 1930s, 1940s, maybe a slight kind of film noir, but maybe a little bit sunnier than that. That's why I personally like this film so much is because it is a period piece. I mean, not directly, obviously, but it is going back to the, the 20s and 30s. And there aren't very many, you know, at the end of the day, this is a superhero film. You know, it's based off of a comic book. And like I said at the beginning, this kind of preponderance of comic book movies now, they're all kind of set in the same era. They don't really do something interesting sometimes. And when you look at a film like this, it's set in a specific period. It has a very distinct style to it. And there aren't very many period piece comic book movies out there. This and The Shadow, uh, to some extent, the, the beginning of the Captain America movie, which coincidentally was directed by Joe Johnston. So, hey, don't forget the Phantom with Billy Zane. Come on. How could man. we forget? him and his purple leotard. And as much as the shadow gets kind of panned, it still has that same feel to me like the Rocketeer does, and I might be the only person, but there's something so inherently intriguing about the setting that it makes me want to watch the film, and I get that same feeling with the Rocketeer. So let's get into the plot a little bit. I mean, it's fairly straightforward. You know, there's a couple twists and turns and everything, but it's a nice straightforward story. I mean, the the comic book is pretty short that it's based on and the writers do a really good job of adapting it. I got a chance to read the original screenplay. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we go along here. It was a, a really good adaptation of this story. I mean, it's basically 
Cliff Secord and PV, who's played by Alan Arkin, they find this rocket pack, and you know it's going to go on his back. So there's a lot of like, should we, shouldn't we, discovery of the rocket pack, working on it and stuff. And I actually like those scenes of them kind of figuring out what this thing is, and PV, who's kind of this you know mechanical genius who takes this thing and actually starts making all these improvements to it builds the helmet for cliff and has a rudder on it you know it's like everything is very practical there's not a lot of glitz and glamour with this though it does have that beautiful design that you were talking about rob all the sleek lines of this actual rocket pack i mean it's a it's a a work of art really and i think part of the reason why you know when i think about the film after seeing it again and why i like this character so much is that and I think we talked about this on other uh, – I think we talked about it on the Punisher episode is that I seem to relate a lot better to superheroes that are not superheroes. And what I mean by that is like I like Batman because like Batman's plausible. Like he's human. He doesn't have the superhuman strength. He doesn't have this cosmic power or anything. The only way he gets around is based on his wits and his skill and his ability. And that to me is exciting and interesting as opposed to someone who has like magical powers and they can like kind of do whatever they want. So in a way, I think I can relate to the the character of the Rocketeer or, you know, even Batman for that matter, because they are that type of, of character that to me is easier to relate to. There's a big difference between Cliff Secord and Bruce Wayne though, and that is capital. Cliff is broke busted. He had a plane that he's going to fly in this this contest and he ends up crashing the plane basically because of the events that lead him to get the rocket pack, you know, unbeknownst to him, it's being hidden in this other plane in this hangar where he's at, but he doesn't have two dimes to rub together. And he's really trying to take care of his girl, you know, impress Jenny. And he's trying to, you know, make a living and he's trying to be a pilot. He crashes his plane and he, you know, is very desperate at this point. So the rocket pack ends up being kind of this gift from the gods for him. He's able to take that, and he doesn't immediately become a superhero either, which is one thing that I like. I mean, there's one moment where he's about to do like a uh, a like a wing wing walker kind of clown act for the the uh, guy who runs the airfield, who's played by John Polito, you know, who Clifford accidentally crashed into a uh, a fuel tanker, and so th- there was all this other stuff, or like through the result of his action, this fuel tanker blows up. So Bigelow, John Polito is like, okay, you need to pay this off. And, you know, every time you do this clown act, you'll get $5 taken off of your, your fee to me, this kind of stuff. And ends up that another guy takes his place thinking that he's doing the right thing. And Cliff has to save him. So it's this nice way of introducing the Rocketeer character. He is doing something heroic, but at the same time, he's basically forced into doing it. And to your point, Rob, I like that he doesn't have superpowers. I mean, the famous you know, one of the famous images of the Rocketeer is him there with you know a gun. It's like, okay, he's got no gadgets other than the rocket pack. That's it. He's got his anonymity of his helmet, he's got his rocket pack, and then he's got a gun and his fists and his wits. And that's all this guy has. Well, another thing that sets him apart from Batman is 
Cliff Secord is actually a likable character. I mean, inherently, he's a blue collar guy. He's not like you said, he doesn't have the funds of Batman. But at least in the film, Cliff Secord is a a wholly likable character, uh, which I attribute to Billy Campbell as an actor being able to kind of come across as this sometimes goofy, doofy kind of everyman, as opposed to Batman, who's this tortured soul because his parents got killed. And we've heard it a million times. We get it. But Cliff Secord is a more relatable character than Batman, even just on a base level on outside of the he doesn't have all the gadgets. He's just a guy, a gun and a, a jetpack. And he's got enemies. I mean, eventually he makes some enemies and he's got these guys who he needs to thwart because the rocket pack had been stolen by these mobsters who are led by Eddie Valentine, who's played by Paul Servino. And they had hidden the pack, you know, in the hangar and everything. So they're trying to get the rocket pack back. And then he also, Cliff, has a enemy in Neville Sinclair, who's played by Timothy Dalton. And Sinclair is putting the moves on Jenny. Sinclair's an actor. Jenny's an actress. She has a bit part in a, uh, like you were saying, Rob, it's basically an Errol Flynn movie. And he's the lead. There's all this sword fighting, all this kind of stuff. And through happenstance and who here overhears what he finds out that cliff has this rocket pack. And so then he is making moves even harder on Jenny, trying to find out more about cliff. And so you have these two opposing forces coming in. Plus you also have the government who's investigating this whole thing and eventually bringing the story around to Howard Hughes, who, like I said before, was played by Terry O'Quinn, Terry O'Quinn doing a great job. I always love when this guy shows up, and anything and so i was just so happy to see him show up as howard hughes and he's playing it in a really nice way like he's not as strange as some of the versions of howard hughes that i've seen he's kind of he's much more magnanimous i definitely have to say and there's kind of a similar like just a few years before uh in tucker man and his dreams we had dean stockwell playing howard hughes as well But Dean Stockwell had this great kind of quirky turn to it where you could really see this guy, you know, in 20 years with long fingernails and collecting his urine and all this kind of stuff. Whereas Terry O'Quinn, knowing Terry O'Quinn, the actor, I can see him having that turn as well. But in this, he's much more of a happy guy, and um, it really plays up his love of uh, airplanes. And I love that they have the model of the Spruce Goose in this hangar where he's hanging out. I like him as this kind of figure who's in the shadows, but he's not menacing whatsoever. Hey, 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 don't call it the Spruce Goose. It's the Hercules. I know that that offended Mr. Hughes quite a bit. Well, I mean, we haven't even mentioned the Nazis. (laughs) <laughs> you know, that's kind of the 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 big part part of the film that I feel like Howard Hughes is there to show the by proxy U.S. government and kind of the U.S. spirit because he's been contracted by the government to build the jetpack and the Nazis are there to steal the jetpack. And so I think if they had had just some random kind of mook aeronautics guy, I don't think it would have been as great as the fact that they can kind of put Howard Hughes in the film. And not have it be the Howard Hughes of Leonardo DiCaprio, where he's walking around with shoe boxes or tissue boxes on his feet. But for me, I mean, Terry O'Quinn is, is just absolutely one of the best parts of the film. He, he's in two scenes, but he's just so magnetic as a character. 
the way he portrays Howard Hughes. Well, and I like that for a little while, we don't necessarily know where Lothar is coming in. Uh, Lothar, who's played by Tani Ron, which was one of those uh, ironic nicknames. Uh, Tani Ron, definitely far from tiny. And Lothar, who basically is the Ron Hatton character. He's playing the Creeper from the Creeper movie in this. And, and throughout the script, they call him just the Creeper or Creeper the whole time, which is pretty great. And... If memory serves, we don't necessarily know where he's coming from at first because he's going out and trying to find out more about the jetpack from the guy who stole it, who's one of these mob guys. So we kind of don't get the connection between Sinclair, Lothar, and the mob until later on in the film. And when that connection is finally made, then it's kind of this nice revelation that all three of these guys are in cahoots. But yeah, then there's the other revelation, which is that Sinclair is a Nazi agent, a saboteur, a spy. So that is a nice way of of tying that back into the Howard Hughes angle as far as him defending the United States from the Nazis. And I love these films that Hughes shows in his office. The the two films, you've got one where it's this uh, kind of file footage of the Nazis trying out a, a jetpack and it basically killing the guy who's wearing it. And then there's the animated film. And the animated film, it only lasts for, what, 30 seconds, 40 seconds, a minute tops? But it is so beautiful, and I just love this animated film because they capture that spirit of those old, like, newsreel Walt Disney kind of, uh, well, which is a fitting since this was a, a Disney film, but the the propaganda films that we saw during World War II. And so it was just gorgeous to see this black and white film that was allegedly produced by the Nazis and them taking over Washington and you know, first Europe, then the world. And I, oh, it's just such a, a great, great short film. That propaganda film is is great, the style of it, but realistically, that's a terrible plan to just have a bunch of rocket men invading the United States. I mean, it's just a bunch of flying soldiers, they get shot down, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just it's just one of those kind of it's not a plot hole, but if you think about it too much, you're just like, yeah, it's probably realistically not the best idea. Well, you know, the Japanese were sending balloons filled with uh, explosives. You know, hitting the jet stream and sending that over to the United States during the war. So I think that the actual living people wearing rocket packs are probably a little bit better than that one. But I can see where you're coming from. And especially if they're actually going to fly across the Atlantic Ocean in the rocket packs, I would think that they would have like some other means to get them at least near international waters, you know, off the coast of of uh you know the east side of the country and then allow them to fly from there but hey we could poke holes in this plan all day the nazis weren't necessarily the the best people at strategy well no and as seen by the end of the film the rocket packs aren't exactly the uh most structurally sound pieces of equipment either so one bullet and uh you have just a nice great big fireball well, at least gum keeps the fuel inside. I do have to say that was nice. The convenient gum. 
I love that gum, the gum that travels through the entire film. I thought it was great. Yeah. And it's there. I mean, the, the, what is it? Beeman's gum. Yeah. That, Beeman's. Yeah, that stuff's not bad, but I was always a fan of the Blackjack. But I think that had to do with more with me watching uh, Pump Up the Volume over and over again. I lost good news. Last the wash is going to come back in style. See? That's like an old school gum. That's from, you know, that era, along with the one that I mentioned, Blackjack, which was the uh, black licorice flavor. I know that gum. I used to chew it when I was a kid. That's my most favorite gum in the world. It's not for me. It's not the gum I like, so it can stay out of style. You need to chew the gum of the Rocketeer, Beeman's. What's that taste like? Jet fuel. <laughs> if you pull it off the rocket pack, it tastes like jet fuel, that's for sure. There are a couple great set pieces in this film, and one of them takes place at a diner, this diner that's shaped like a bulldog. And I love this set, and it's, again, right out of the comics, having this bulldog diner. And I think that it was based on a real place. I mean, we've got some crazy restaurants in L.A. back during this time, like the Brown Derby and, you know, the Randy's Donut shape and all this kind of stuff. But I'm not sure 100% if the Bulldog was out of this or somewhere else or out of the comic. But uh, all the people that hang out at the Bulldog and just all this the camaraderie of all these pilots and these folks hanging out. And again, just some great character actors in there and poor Jenny. I mean, Jenny, the one thing that I don't necessarily like about the Rocketeer movie is that Jenny isn't introduced until I feel a little too late. Like we're already with cliff completely. And Jenny's kind of been mentioned a little bit, but we're not seeing her. We're not, getting anything from her for a while and i think having introducing her a little bit earlier in the proceedings might have been nice and we don't necessarily get her motivation sometimes like at least for me like i i know she wants to be an actress and i know that she wants better things from cliff though she's not a gold digger i don't think by any means but she's not happy eating at some place like the bulldog every single night she wants to go to different places but then at the same time cliff immediately jumps to you know the south sea club and just these higher echelon restaurants where it's like i'm sure there's some happy medium that you can come to with jenny to make her happy it doesn't have to be the brown derby the coconut grove any of these kind of bigger places it can be someplace a little nicer than the bulldog, but he's very comfortable amongst his own people. Yeah. I feel like they didn't really do a a great job with giving her, like you said, her motivations are kind of nebulous for a lot of the films. So I feel like introducing her when they did gave them an out as opposed to having to give her more backstory. She does have a really good scene in the South Seas Club when there's a lot of tension going on in this scene, when we have her and Neville, Neville Sinclair out to dinner and Cliff kind of figures out what's going on, wants to rescue her. And it's basically a meeting of all of these parties because eventually we get the mobsters coming in here led by Paul Sorvino as Eddie Valentine. 
And he's been through the movie a lot, but we generally see him kind of off to the side commanding these folks. We don't necessarily see him in the action a whole lot, but he eventually does become part of the action and everything. And I don't know. I was a little nervous when it came to a nightclub in Los Angeles and having the doors kind of locked and people trying to get out while this guy's flying around with fire coming out of them. I was just like, wow, this kind of seems like the coconut grove all over again. But fortunately, it didn't go that way. And you have the lovely Melora Hardin singing from uh, The Office fame, which uh, I always thought was kind of uh, funny, knowing kind of where her career is now. And she was just kind of the lead singer at the South Seas Club in the giant clamshell that opens up because this movie is extremely extravagant with its set pieces. So eventually, she becomes our damsel in distress. She gets kidnapped by Neville. And somewhere in here, there's a Bill Cosby joke that I need to make, but I can't quite figure it out because she gives a great line about... Do you have to drug all your women to seduce them? I wish I could figure out a good way to work that in as a punchline, but I'm just not up to the task. Well, Neville Sinclair doesn't say otherwise, so I would assume that he does. He never really says otherwise. He just kind of brushes it off, so... I was very surprised that Neville Sinclair ended up being straight. For some reason, I would think that had this been made maybe by a different studio or whatever, that it would have turned out that he actually wasn't the leading man all the time, that he was a a double agent in many ways, that not only was he playing for the other team when it came to the Nazis, but he was playing for the other team when it came to the bedroom. But I was kind of glad that they didn't go there with this one. I can see another filmmaker doing that to his character. But instead, he maintains himself. And luckily, when it comes out that he is this Nazi saboteur, he doesn't necessarily change that much. He's always been a little dickish. And he just kind of maintains that dickery through the rest of the film. He never becomes like the sniveling, you know, he's not drooling and, and, uh, you know, uh, twisting his mustache like Snidely Whiplash or anything. He plays a good heavy in this and he doesn't overdo it. My only issue with when he reveals himself to be a turncoat as a Nazi is there are a couple scenes where he kind of attempts a, German accent, sort of. He kind of attempts it. He hints at it. And I'm thankful that he wasn't he didn't just turn on the dial to full Nazi German accent because he can't do one. That would have been a caricature and cartoonish if he had. Which this movie could go into cartoonish at any moment, but they keep it clear that, which I really dig about this. I mean, because they could have gone way out. They could have, you know, added cartoon sound effects to this thing had they wanted to. But I was so glad that they stayed their hand and maintained the course when it came to the tone of this film. And it's got this great kind of mix of fun and serious, but maintaining the adventure you know and really like you were saying rob as far as indiana jones there is that kind of feeling this kind of jean de vrive kind of thing of this is you know a young boy's dream kind of thing you know everybody dreams of flying and this just kind of captures that you know spirit when it comes to this Oh, definitely. And like I said, I think the design has a lot to do with that. I think these sort of 1930s serials kind of idea 
that seems to be in here. Sort of the more cartoony villains. I mean, I, I at one point almost expected Timothy Dalton's character to tie up, uh, you know, uh, Jennifer Conley onto railroad tracks kind of thing. I mean, it's like <laughs> there's all of this kind of stuff that's in there that is very cartoony. It is very uh, comic strip. But it's good because it, it plays in that universe. I don't think that you could have done it contemporary and had it that way. But because it does live in that, you know, sort of concept of what that era was like in terms of the gee whiz kind of uh, dialogue and things like that, it, it, it works. Maybe the Disney should give the rights to someone and they can make a grounded, gritty reboot of The Rocketeer and see how far they get. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it would almost it would almost be like today, I think you would have to do something like like the Dark Knight or something. He would have to be this like tortured figure who has to, you know, right the wrongs and he's, you know, horribly disfigured. So he has to wear the mask and all that stuff. I mean, they'd come up with something to make it much more darker. But the thing that's interesting, like I was talking about earlier uh, at the beginning, is that for this to be a Disney film, it's kind of, it's kind of odd that it's under Walt Disney Pictures because there are certain elements that make it feel... Um, a bit more adult, but then there are elements that make it feel a bit more family friendly. So it's kind of sitting in this weird sort of gray area. And it's my understanding that there were the possibility of sequels, there were the possibility of turning this into some sort of franchise, but that didn't happen because it didn't perform as well. And I can kind of understand why some folks, I don't know, maybe couldn't wrap their head around it because it is kind of anachronistic to a certain extent, much more than Indiana Jones. I mean, even though Indiana Jones is in the 30s, I don't see Harrison Ford trying to pull off like 1930s style acting or something like that or dialogue. I mean, it's it, it's contemporary, but it's set in the 30s kind of thing. Well, for me, I think the first Indiana Jones plays in the serials really well. And it doesn't have that cartoonishness. But as we go along, especially when it comes to 3, which I know a lot of people love The Last Crusade, but for me, that's when Indiana Jones became a cartoon. Like, the whole idea of Marcus and Sala, like, suddenly becoming nincompoops. And then we've got Dr. Jones and Dr. Jones meeting Hitler and stuff. And it's just like, yeah, this doesn't necessarily work for me. So, though that acting wasn't there the hammy acting that you're talking about and you know hamish let's say not necessarily hammy but the tone was much more there as far as you know not being as serious as say the first two or at least the first one well the only other uh, something you were talking about rob that it's it's surprising that this is a disney film there's really only one other Disney film from that time that I can even remotely feel is close in tone to The Rocketeer, and that's Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Uh, it's It's got this wants to be an adult film, and a lot of parts of Who Framed Roger Rabbit are have these adult themes, but then there's also the cartoon aspect of the film, and it's inherently about cartoon characters, and cartoons are for kids, at least that's the preconceived notion. So I feel like... Disney did Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which was successful, and then they made this film, which was not success. I mean, it made its money back, but it didn't make the millions upon millions that they were expecting. And then Disney just decided to to play it safe for the longest time, and then they came back to live-action movies again. They made Tron, which bombed. They made Tomorrowland, which bombed, and now they're just going back to, you know, 
just animated movies again. And I think it's unfortunate because Disney can step outside of that box and make great films like this and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So we definitely have a lot of theories as far as why the film didn't do as well as it probably should have. But I figured let's go right to the horse's mouth when it comes to this stuff. And we're going to take a break and play a pair of interviews. The first is with writers Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo. The second one is with director Joe Johnston. And we'll play those right after these messages. Hey folks, have you caught up with See Here podcast yet? Here are some of the pearls of wisdom that you can hear on a monthly basis. Here's Tim. How do you get people to take notice anymore, aside from shitting on the floor and rolling around in it, eating it, and throwing it at people? How about Wendy? I was thinking about this as I was watching. I was thinking about that documentary about Levon Helm. Man, drummers are some crotchety-ass people. <laughs> what does Sticky have to say? Anyway, there was some guy in there, and he was kind of peeking into the window, trying to see what this record that was hanging up in the window was. As I was getting closer and closer to him, I realized it was Robert Plant, and he said, uh, oh, I, I just wanted to check this uh, record out in the window. And I said, oh, sorry, mate, you'll have to come back later when I open it. <laughs> and I'm rather boring. It sort of became a story about a man trying to promote the music that he loves against the backdrop of other people shooting the asses. You can get the See Here podcast at seehere.podbean.com, that's S-W-E-H-E-A-R, or you can find it on iTunes. We discuss music-related films. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the quarter bin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. Flesh Like Smoke is the toothsome new shapeshifter anthology from April Moon Books. Curated and edited by Brian M. Sammons with illustrations by Neil Baker, Flesh Like Smoke is a collection of 16 tales of visceral horror from today's most talented authors. Some of these tortured souls lash out against their cursed existence, while others relish the taste of animalistic power. Ranging from gut-wrenching terror to heart-rending pathos, Flesh Like Smoke will leave you salivating for more with every turn of the page. Flesh Like Smoke is available in paperback and ebook format from Amazon.com and AprilMoonBooks.com, as well as other online purveyors of fine literature. Hurry to sink your claws into a copy before the next full moon. Hi, I'm Paul DeMeo. I'm a screenwriter and producer and video game writer. And I was the uh, writer along with Danny Bilson, screenwriter of The Rocketeer. Right. I'm Danny Bilson, the uh, other screenwriter of The Rocketeer and many other things. How did you guys get involved with The Rocketeer Project? Back in the 80s, we worked at a B-movie company called Empire at the time. And our offices were down... um, 
on Fairfax near Melrose. And there's a pretty famous comic book shop called the Golden Apple on Melrose that we used to like go to for ideas and for fun pretty much at lunchtime. And in the 80s was kind of this interesting renaissance in comics where the comics were sort of being written for adults or young adults in such a manner that they were as interesting as they were when we were kids. I'm talking about things like The Dark Knight and American Flag. And uh, in those bins, when we were you know, reading some of these great comics of the 80s, we found The Rocketeer. The art, of course, attracted us first. And then um, you know, we were really into stuff from the 30s anyway. We grew up in old movies. From there, I don't remember... I know we really liked it, and we somehow we got a hold of Dave Stevens. I think the guys at Golden oh, Apple. Oh, Golden Apple. Golden Probably Apple the guys us. at the comic book store helped us get a hold of Dave. Right. And what ha- coincidentally, there was a director named Steve Miner who had the rights to the Rocketeer, and they had just lapsed. So we got together with Dave, and uh, to make a long story short, we pitched a bunch of ideas we had for the movie. And, and the one that he really loved was the idea of us using Rondo Hatton, the creeper, because that was a favorite character of his. And I think he realized that we had very similar taste and we didn't have any money though. So he, but he gave us a free option on the material. We kind of took it from there, but that's how it started with Dave is we found him from the comic book store. The option had lapsed and we pitched him a lot of stuff and he really just saw that we were sort of kindred spirits and he threw in with us to, uh, Go try to develop a movie story and sell it. And uh, David also seen a movie that we had made while we were at Empire, which was called Zone Troopers, which uh, we wrote and Danny directed, which was set during World War II. But it had that same kind of energy and dialogue and style of uh, the Rocketeer. And in that Danny and I were trying to make the movie as if it were made during World War Two, you know, with that kind of uh, attitude. And uh, Dave really responded to that because he saw that we were into the the style of the period and the language and had that old movie sensibility that Dave also had. And I remember going into the Golden Apple with Danny and, and picking up the, one of the first issues of The Rocketeer that we saw and, and just the image on the cover. And we looked at it and said, this guy's a movie. Before we even opened the book, we said, this is a movie. It's just the image was so striking. It was so cool. The helmet. and the, I think he was holding the, the Mauser on the cover. And um, it just immediately caught us, the, the image of that character. So not a lot of comic book movies were being made at the time. What was kind of the process to get this thing going for you guys? Boy, when we came back from Italy where we made Zone Troopers, this is kind of funny. We... There was this thing called the American Film Market, which was in sort of that time of the year, like in February. Our earlier movie, Trancers, that you know we talked about before, was at the American Film Market, and Jim Cameron saw it. And evidently, he liked it enough to recommend us to these executives at Fox. And one of them's name was, um, I think it was Scott Rudin and Lloyd Levin. And Lloyd called us up when we got back from Italy and told us that Cameron had liked our movie and... And uh, what else did we want to do? And we had the Rocketeer and somewhere right around that Lloyd. Oh, Larry Gordon was president of Fox at the time. And and, Larry, and Lloyd continued to work with Larry for years after that. And they took the Rocketeer with them. And we took it out on the market with Lloyd and uh, Larry, primarily Lloyd, of course. Right. And we're still work with Lloyd to this day. 
And Dave would, uh, boy, we pitched it. We pitched God, it a lot. Know, at least a dozen times at every major studio before Disney picked it up. And we had a whole presentation <laughs> down where Dave would bring um, some of the original art, which had been colored and uh, hand-painted. Uh, there was a, a really good response to the art itself. But in terms of comic book movies, there hadn't been a lot of... Well, there was the Batman movie, the Burden Batman movie. Right. And uh, I don't think it was really movies. It was it was it wasn't not, about being a comic book. It was right. more Raiders of the Lost Ark. Right. I think it was the success of that series is what sort of helped us sell it to a studio that sort of wanted their own right. period adventure. As I as I recall. I think that probably makes sense because uh, the comic books that were being made into movies at the time were all the big famous ones and the rocketeer was more really known to, to the comic book nerd you know i mean it wasn't, it wasn't a famous book there wasn't a 50-year history of the character at the time raiders really did make i think the rocketeer possible in terms of marketability as a big period adventure movie about what time was this when you guys were kind of shopping it around because i know Zone Troopers, 85, transfers around 84. Yeah, it was 86 because I remember that we worked on the movie before it was actually made. We were writing for like six years on the movie, five, six years before it was made and all the various drafts and all the different. Uh, yeah, it was a long process. Yeah, it was a long process. And the original uh, director that Disney put on the picture was was Bill Deere, who uh had directed uh, Harry and the Hendersons and had directed um, a couple episodes of uh, the Spielberg Amazing series. Stories. Amazing stories. He's a right. commercial director. And also a commercial director. If you read the credits, of course, of the the movie, you see that Bill shares uh, story credit with, with Danny and me. And the draft that we wrote with Bill, uh, and we did several drafts with Bill, um, when Joe Johnson came on, we uh, changed in particular, the third act a lot. And um, so Danny and I had just uh, sole screenplay credit on it. But during the course of that five, six years, uh, Disney removed us from the script and put us back on it at largely at uh, Larry and Lloyd's insistence back on it three times. And we were there at the end when the uh, uh, movie went into production. But yeah, fired three times. <laughs> well, I don't know if they were fired. Well, let's say they brought in other writers three times. And then, event, and then every time they came back to our draft. What were some of the ways that your guys' draft changed over that long period of fruition? There was a little more edgy stuff in it. All right, a little more. Betty was a little oh, sexy. Hollywood pictures. Or touchstone first. Yeah, yeah, but the point that I remember in the draft that it was a little more like the comics that, you know, Betty or they changed to Jenny was sexier than in the movie. There was a little more sexuality to it as opposed to a sort of young, uh, doughy-eyed ingenue. And the third act was a lot different. In in ours, in the original, there was this huge battle in the desert at the end between the Zeppelin all the gangsters in their cars on the ground and the and a whole armada of airplanes, uh, all the flyers from the airfield came out and had this big battle scene. That got scaled down to the observatory and the the gangster armada and the airplane, uh, all, those, all, all of those elements were scaled way, way down. 
I'm trying to remember. Didn't Bills have something about there was a submarine? Bills had, had a U-boat at the Bills end. Bills had a U-boat and that whole nightclub thing that was on the water. Kind oh, of thing. there was, uh, and and he had a there was a subplot. I mean, he didn't some, write. He would just give us notes, and we did all the writing. It wasn't right. like like that. Yeah, when I said we say Bills draft, we mean the, the draft that we developed once Bill came aboard. There was also another, at least in one of the drafts, there was a character that was a German test pilot that worked with Sinclair that was going to steal the rocket pack. I don't I mean, remember that. Yeah, I mean, there was, man, there were so many drafts. It was kind of hard to keep track. But one thing that, that pretty much stayed the same, no matter what draft it was, is everything from the opening of the movie through the first time he flies as the Rocketeer with Malcolm at the, uh, and saves Malcolm at the uh, uh, air show, uh, that pretty much stayed the same, and it's also pretty close to Dave's comic. I noticed a lot of nice touches in the screenplay and in the film. The use of the name Wilmer as the guy who steals yeah. the, yeah, was that a <laughs> yeah. Maltese Falcon? <laughs> From uh, Maltese Falcon? Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. There's a bunch of those. Yeah, I also noticed uh, Eddie Valentine had a different name. It was uh, Eddie Mars in the screenplay I read. Uh, We had to change it because Eddie Mars was the guy from The Big Sleep in the Chandler novel. And that was another homage. And uh, Disney Legal told us we had to change it. We didn't think anybody would ever notice. (laughs) But we had to change that, too. That's right. Good catch. Yeah, it was nice that to see how you guys kind of interweave this kind of Chandler world into The Rocketeer. It was really very nicely done. Thank you. Well, we're huge Chandler fans. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. it was more movies of the period. Well, it was LA in the thirties yeah. too. In the late thirties, early forties, we really wanted to capture a little bit of that Marlowe spirit, just in the way the city was depicted, you know, the gangsters and the, and all that stuff. And, and, um, it's certainly romanticized, but, uh, it was a lot of fun to, to think about all those things. And, and like when you go, did you catch the, you, obviously you, you caught the Robin Hood uh, homage in the opening uh, uh, where uh, Cliff goes well, to the movie, goes to the movie set and they start with the sword fight on the, right. and the, the whole, shadows on the wall. But the whole idea of the bad guy was it was based on the rumor of Errol Flynn being a Nazi spy. That was the whole point. That's where the whole idea came from. Were there things that you guys had to eventually change where you're just like, man, I really wish we had been able to keep that? Well, the one famous scene that I think there's at least production illustration for was the scene at the Grommets Chinese where he lands and his feet get in the cement by accident and he takes off and there's a blast mark. That was in the com- in one of the comics, I think, or maybe it was a... It was in the novelization. They put it in the no, novelization. No, 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 but oh, where but. we got it from before that, before the movie. I mean, in I think the there was a... there were, Or somebody did a tribute, piece of tribute art with him at the Chinese theater. So might've been that there was, there was that scene. I remember that was like one that was cut for production budget. The and other very, thing very that late too. the other stuff that was cut was the action in the South seas club was probably another week's worth of production. Cause it was really, I thought it was one of the best, if not the best action scene we ever wrote. And it didn't get filmed because they pulled the plug on Joe in there because of budget issues, even though the movie, I think, Cost around $42 million, which by today's standards is nothing. It was high. Um, they were really grinding him on the money. So unfortunately, that action sequence, because there was some great stuff in there. I remember him like picking up a palm tree and like flying with it, like using it like a battering ram. I mean, there was some really neat stuff that got cut. 
And that South Seas Club in ours was based on the old cafeteria downtown that had the Clifton's, South, the Clifton's cafeteria that had that much de- more decor. Version, but yeah, yeah, but that's what it was inspired by, right? And uh, yeah, there were a lot more bits that were supposed to happen inside the nightclub. I remember the day that that I, I think we were on the set when Katzenberg came down to well, talk to Joe and told him that he had. All a I remember is Joe was really mad. Yeah, he was very upset about that. If you when you see the movie, you you can see there is one moment where Cliff is flying. I think he's on his way to the South Seas, and he flies over Hollywood Boulevard, and you see the searchlights at the um, Chinese. And that scene, they were going to film it. It was actually cut pretty late in the uh, in the production schedule. So it would have dovetailed right into that moment, but there's that one little vestige of it when he flies over Hollywood Boulevard. What was the atmosphere like on set? It seems like a pretty good shoot if you guys were allowed to be on there and you guys got along with Joe and everything. We were doing the Flash TV show at the same time. We weren't on the set very much because we were running our show. It was right. going on at the exactly the same time. So there was a little bit of, I know Joe wanted us around more to do more rewrites. There were times we went over there at night. Um, one particular huge rewriting sequence in the nightclub where we went over there at night because the actors were debating over whose scene it should be. And we went back and forth from between, okay, now Dalton likes it, but Servino doesn't like it. Now Servino likes it, but Dalton doesn't like it. It was kind of nutty. But we didn't spend tons of time on the set because we were on the Flash set the whole time, unfortunately. I mean, I remember we went out to where the Bulldog Cafe was out, out in uh, sort of north of L.A., we went out to the and, to the Zeppelin set you know, when we, it was outside. Yeah, so we went to a few things. We were at the observatory. Yeah, we, we went down to Long Beach right. once. But it was usually when we would get a call that said, you guys come down here. We need help. We had no luxury time right. that year to go for fun or go to hang out. I think, you know, yeah, we, I, it wasn't an issue of us not being welcome. I think the issue was really that he wanted us to be more available, actually. Yeah. And there was, uh, uh, of course, all the stuff that was shot on the Disney stages, like the South Seas Club. And I think um, Sinclair's interior of his house was there and probably the interior of the Bulldog as well. Or was that out in Santa Rosa or Santa Clarita, wherever that was? I I don't remember. I thought the interior was practical. It might have been. I think you're right. But, you know, the Warner Brothers lot is only two minutes from the Disney lot. So when they were on the lot, it was, which wasn't a lot of time. Like I said, it was, we, it was possible for us to run back and forth. And actually the exterior of the South seas club was shot on the Warner's back lot, which was where we were shooting the flash. And we were out there that night and uh, working. And um, Joe had that section of the back lot and but John was there. John Ship, who was playing the Flash, was there. But John wasn't in the in the suit that night. And the opportunity we missed that we really wanted that Danny and I really wanted to have was a photograph of the Flash and the Rocketeer together, which would have been really cool. But we didn't get it. Shaking hands and on the back lot of uh, Warner Brothers, that would have been really cool. But we didn't get it. Yeah, it's really kind of surprised to see that this was a Walt Disney film and not a Touchstone film. Do you think that affected kind of the the content? You said that you had to tame it a little bit. I think the taming came from Touchstone. We were on the Touchstone side. It became a Disney movie later in the process. And I know that 
I was okay personally with it being a Disney movie because I had this lifelong dream of always having my name on a Disney film. I, the producers were concerned that it was going to hurt the box office at that time, of it being a Disney film and not a Touchstone film. That it would be perceived as being soft. Yeah, as a kid movie. Yeah. yeah. A lot of people have told us later, told us after, you know, in, in, the, in the years after, and even right after the film came out, a lot of people came up to us and said, you know, I saw the movie. I saw the movie you guys did. I, and these are adults. And said, I took my kids to see it, and I really loved it. I thought it was a movie for kids. Yeah, that was back then. You're talking yeah, about that it. was back then. And I think that there was a misperception on the part of the public that it was not going to be uh, a movie that adults would enjoy as much as children. And that Well, because in those office. days, the Disney brand wasn't as broadened right. as it is now. So – I even remember that when the when the uh, rating was put on the movie, that Larry wanted the they didn't want it to be a Disney movie because a Disney film at the time couldn't have a harder rating than PG, and this was right after PG thirteen came out. And to, to some of us, like like our producers, the PG was for this film kind of a not a kiss of death, but that it, it would be perceived as a family film. And it was like, no, give us the PG-13 because that's what Raiders got. The second Raiders film actually instigated the PG-13, if you remember. So make it make it a PG-13, please. That'll make it seem like it's more for, you know, an older crowd. But we got the PG. And in the end, um, for all their efforts, because, you know, they promoted the hell out of it. I, the poster was great, but it just... Missed that big score with the wider demographic when it first. Well, opened. yeah, Robin Hood wiped it out of the box office. Yeah, that's the thing is the the Robin Hood, the, the Costner, Kevin Costner Robin Hood, opened the same time, same week. Oh wow, yeah, and that was such a big deal. That one kind of knocked out the other Robin Hood film that was supposed to come out right at the same time. What was the other one? That was with uh, oh god, who was the 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 bad guy from uh, Sleeping with the Enemy? He was. Oh, Patrick Bergen. They made it into a, like a TV miniseries or something that with Uma Thurman, right? The the King of Thieves actually won out for me. I ended up seeing that and not the other one. So Yeah. Did the film do well critically when it came out? I think it did okay. Yeah. I remember somewhere I have the video, Gene Shallot loved it on the Today Show. Yeah, I think Ebert yeah. liked it. I mean, I think, you know... Yeah, we got, no, I think it did fine. I don't remember yeah. thinking it got bashed at all. I don't remember bad reviews. I mean, the interesting thing about it is now it's one of the most beloved live-action Disney films of, like, that 20-year era. Yeah. I mean, that's what's was really cool is that people, you know, since the 20th anniversary, which is now three or four years ago, people have been coming up to us all the time, and it's my favorite, one of my favorite movies, or the first movie I saw, or my dad took it to me when I, took me to when I was a kid. And really interesting, I've been working at Imagineering this year, consulting on a few things, and I like and, and the guys over there and women are, you know, of an age where you know and they know the Disney product really well. They really revere the movie, and all of that's really grat- you know, gratifying. I mean, I, I think the movie's a lot of fun. Yeah, I think you know. Well, it also didn't have a movie star in it, if you recall. Right. right. Well, the biggest star was Dalton. He had just he had done. Uh, was he done doing his Bond? He had films? done James Bond. I don't know if he was done. At that time, yeah, but. he had done at least one of the one of his two Bond films. So he was the biggest name in the movie. Yeah, it really. Yeah. I think it was hard to get a movie star to want to put. You know, it's always in those days. Movie stars didn't want to put the suit on. You know, any suit, any superhero type suit, or in this case, the helmet. I, I don't know. Yeah. 
But, you know, in retrospect, Campbell was perfect. You know, he was he looked like the guy in the comic. He had the right mix of physicality and the guy next door. And, and um, you know, he's he was really, uh, I think, a perfect fit for the part. Well, in the supporting cast, I mean, Paul Sorvino and Alan Arkin and just so many great character actors, William Sanderson. The one that always gets me, though, is that um, Clint Howard is listed in the credits, but I only see him for like two seconds. I think he's got a, maybe a line or two, and he probably is had he in a the little, nightclub. Yeah, he's one of Eddie's henchmen. And I think that he uh, probably had a bigger part in, you know, like maybe the longer version of the film before it was cut down. Because uh, I remember seeing him on the set, you know, like as Eddie's one of Eddie's goons. But yeah, he he had I think two two or three lines left in the film. Terry O'Quinn uh, was really great as uh, Howard Hughes. I, I liked his performance a lot. And Jennifer Conley, she was she was uh, great. I thought she really once the Betty character was recalibrated to be that character and not you know Dave's fantasy of Betty Page. She did a really nice job with that part. And she and Bill together were, uh, you know, their, their affection on camera became real. And then Tommy Ron Taylor as uh, Lothar or the Creeper. Dead ringer, man. The makeup effects just so good to make him look so much like Rondo Hatton. Well, we were shocked that they went all the way with it. You know, that well, because Joe loved the idea, too. And uh, to actually take it that far, (laughs) and you know that was another instance where I don't we had I think we had to make up the name Lothar or Dave came up with the name because we couldn't call him the Creeper. You know, in the script I think we called him the Creeper, but we had to take the name out. Uh, But yeah, that was that was fun too. Uh, You know, with the twin forty fives, and we gave him the hat and the whole thing. You know. Yeah, it was kind of uncanny seeing him. I, like for years, I was like, "Did he live that long?" You know. <laughs> well, it's funny because we remembered the guy from you know seeing the movies on television when we were kids. Like he was—I don't remember how many movies he actually played the creeper in. I mean, there was a Sherlock Holmes one, right? And then there yeah, was and another, there was another one. one. Yeah, but it, it's just the character stuck with us. And then if you if you see the uh, the second. Um, uh, Rocketeer uh, story that Dave did, the final one that we worked on uh, with him. Uh, Lothar's a character in that as well, drawn, of course, to look like Rondo. Tell me about that. What was this story that you guys worked on? Well, you know, while we were doing the movie, we Dave was going to do, or did do, another book. Because there's only really like two there's only books. two. There's only two books. And so we wrote the second book with Dave. And that was where Cliff's New York Adventure and and it was its own graphic novel, and then we there's yeah. three. There were three issues that made one story, and so yeah, we wrote that with him. And so part of the writing process was we not only wrote the movie, we also wrote the second half of the comics that Dave did. And we actually learned how to write a comic book script from Dave, and it was really hard. <laughs> it was it, it was it was a hard uh, for me anyway. It was a hard format to grasp, but he showed us how to do it. I'm familiar with screenplays. What is the format of a comic script like? Well, well, you have to lay out the panels. So yeah. you have to visualize the page. It's a little bit like directing. You have to you know, describe the shot, decide how big it's going to be, how many panels are going to be on the page. Right. So there's a whole graphic element to the writing. 
that's the big difference. That must have been something being able to collaborate with him on another Rocketeer. Yeah, it was. Oh yeah, that's, it was all part of the same thing. You know, we, yeah. we worked with him a lot for those for those years, and he was a good friend. And then with the Flash, I can't believe you guys take so many years to get the Rocketeer going, and then of course that and the Flash are hitting at the same time. Right, we were exhausted, <laughs> man. We were, believe me. Yeah, we were working some really long hours back then. Yeah, Danny's not exaggerated when he when he said that you know sometimes we were on the Disney set at like two in the morning because it was they would be shooting all night and we'd be trying to run our show and working on the scripts on the Flash. Uh, all day and night and um it was pretty exhausting but it was also you know really incredibly exciting because it was our first television series and it was our first movie that was a major motion picture as they say you know and one that we had worked on for so many number of years it was really cool to see it come to life do you guys ever feel like maybe you're a little bit too far ahead of the curve when it came to you know the flash and the rocketeer and some of these other you know projects that you worked yes, on it's been a problem for our, <laughs> unfortunately our, our true. Whole career yeah really had you guys got to slow down yeah well you know <laughs> what's funny too is is we were t- actually talking about this today you know of course with the new flash series is our flash uh is now called classic flash like uh you know like on, on the internet like uh like classic coke which we think is kind of cool <laughs> And if you've been following the news on that show, a lot of our uh, our actors and characters are coming onto the show. John, of course, has a big part in the show, and Mark uh, Hamill is doing the trickster on the show, uh, which I think this week you said or next week is on. Amanda did an episode. Yeah, Amanda Pays did an episode, and uh, <clears throat> Vito uh, did an episode. Uh, he played uh, the cop. Uh, uh, we're waiting. Bellows. We're waiting by the phone. Yeah, we're waiting by the phone for us to be invited to uh, come in and write a guest episode because that'd be a lot of fun. Still waiting. Still waiting. <laughs> <laughs> that would be pretty cool if you guys got to do that. Yeah, you know, it'd be fun. It would be fun just because because of the old show, you know. Yeah, between the Flash and the Rocketeer, I mean, did you guys have any concerns, or did studios have any concerns about the level of special effects that were going to have to be supported back in the early nineties? Uh, no. I mean, they just give you a budget, and if we, and, and it's up to us to make it work. I don't think, you know, one thing about our shows, all of our shows, is we never we tried to get all the money on the screen back in the in whenever we were making television. And we would just push it. We didn't really watch TV at that time. We just made stuff that, you know, we were trying to make our little movies on TV. And we would just do as much as we could with with the budget we had. There were definitely concerns about the budget of The Flash. I mean, I remember after episode four, they came down and said, all right, you guys are spending too much money. You better stop or we're going to shut you down. And we managed a way to, uh, found a way to make it for a little less. Right. And, you know, of course... With the Rocketeer now, if you were to make a movie today, you'd be relying on CG instead of, I mean, you know, those planes and the, the GB and all that stuff, and uh, you know, those were really yeah, up there. Better because it is a real plane flying. Yeah, those are up there flying around, and and the Zeppelin uh, gondola, of course, was a full scale set, and the Zeppelin hull or the bag, whatever the hell you call it, that. They have the fight on at the end where you see uh, the Rocketeer land on top of the blimp and climb. I mean, that was a full scale section of the fuselage, you know, uh, of the balloon of the of the, the Zeppelin. So 
the scale of that stuff and, you know, and having, uh, and then there were miniatures and puppets and all that stuff. Certainly you would be doing that. The majority of it with CG now. And even with the flash, I mean, I think it was the first time they were actually using digital effects in order for us to get the speed effects on the flash. I mean, we were doing stuff besides the sort of expected things like, you know, under cranking the camera and putting it on a, you know, getting his uh, POVs through the city and, and all that. When we were doing the blur effects and things like that, those were digital effects, which at the time were pretty radical and very expensive. Even his suit was expensive because the, the flash suit was built by Robert Short, who had built the Batman suits for Tim Burton. Well, and they had to ex- handle all that heat from him traveling so fast. Yeah. Them, too. <laughs> and they also had to travel, you know, and, and, you know, John was dying in that suit. Because uh, it's made of foam. And even uh, the Rocketeer helmet, you know, going back on the Rocketeer, but when they made the first versions of the helmet, it looked too big on on Bill's body, you know, because in order for it to, because if you look at the, the, the illustrations, it almost is like impossible to fit that thing on the guy's head <laughs> because of the way it is, is built. It's not oversized like a football helmet. And Dave got in there and worked with the designer, with uh, with um, Jim Bissell, and carved and, and, and reduced it little by little by little until it got that silhouette that just barely fit on Bill's head. But you got that sleekness to it. And that was a big concern is making that helmet look right and making it look cool and not oversized because it would have thrown all the proportions off of the character. Was there ever any talk of doing a sequel to The Rocketeer? Yeah. yeah, back then. <laughs> back then. The box office kind of killed it. Yeah, unfortunately, I, our deal was to do two more uh, films. And so, and I think all of us had uh, uh, had deals for three films, including Joe and the, and the actors. So sadly, though, uh, when the film did not perform up to expectations, that was shelved. We had talked a lot about what we might do with Dave for a second film. And, you know, our initial instinct was let's take him to Manhattan and have him fly around, you know, the big skyscrapers of Manhattan, what that plot would have been. I don't know, but that was the, the visual image was let's go to New York, which is what happens in the uh, Cliff's New York adventure. The second Rocketeer graphic novel is that's what we had hoped to do. So for fans that want a sequel, they should read the book. Yeah, that's the only real sequel of The Rocketeer is Dave's second book. What are you guys working on these days? We wrote a movie for Oliver Stone that he's going to make uh, next year. We have an animated show in development with Film Roman that's a kid's thing. It's kind of like uh, Little Rascals meets Lord of the Rings. And uh, we're currently <clears throat> writing a new script, a new uh, feature script. It's kind of like The Fugitive in the 19th century France. So... We're doing a lot of writing these days, and we both uh, we both also teach at USC, teach screenwriting, and I teach writing for video games as well. So we're, we, we're in do a lot of consulting work in addition, but primarily we're uh, cranking out the pages these days right. again. And we've got another pilot that we wrote that's based, based, on, based on a book. And that's <clears> very cool. <throat> and so we're, you know, we're working all the time. And uh, it's, you know... It never stops, really. <laughs> and maybe what you said earlier about us being uh, ahead of our time uh, back then, maybe things have caught up with us now. You know, instead, so. of, instead of leaving <laughs> us behind, you know, that's that's the worry is you get behind the curve instead of stay ahead of it. But, 
you know, it's it's we love doing this stuff and we love doing genre stuff. And, you know, if, if Disney called us today and said, hey, you know what? We think we want to do a Rocketeer uh, sequel or a reboot. Would you guys want to do it? Absolutely. We're in 100 percent. When it comes to writing for video games, how does that differ from screenwriting and comic book writing? Well, that's a whole uh, <laughs> that's a <clears throat> that's a long conversation. But I mean, at, at the basis, it's it's more about the things you do than the things you watch. It's just just to keep it simple. There's, it's it's writing through activity and writing through objectives and rewards and telling stories through objectives and rewards. So it's some things are similar in terms of. Oh, right. You know, memorable moments and and but but sometimes it's not linear and and uh, you know spent a lot of years sort of translating what carries over and what doesn't. But primarily, it's uh, writing for things that the the player the things the player participates in are going to be way more memorable than anything you write or that they watch in a game. You mentioned the cartoon of Little Rascals meets Lord of the Rings, and I just picture Alfalfa with his ring finger bit off you know <laughs> well you're pretty close yeah, you're pretty you're right no it's it's a fun idea it's a fun idea and uh we're actually just seeing some character art for it now and um we like the pilot that we wrote it's it's a lot of fun and uh it's yeah it's cool that's terrific and hey selling the script to stone i mean having that made whatever you're doing and I, I'm sure I shouldn't ask about it. So whatever you're doing with Oliver Stone, that sounds like a pretty big deal as well. Well, I hope so. We, we really like it. We think it's a really good movie. He doesn't want us to talk about it. So, um, we can't. but, um, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. It's, it's, it's dark. I mean, it's not, it's the opposite end of the spectrum from the, uh, yeah. the kids thing. Right. We got a kids cartoon show on one hand and on the other hand, we have a pretty, uh, drama with Oliver Stone, you know? Two very different things, but something that, you know, a script that we really we worked really hard on that we're pretty proud of that we think uh, is a different, not a different direction for us, but a deeper direction for us where we push ourselves on certain things to write a different kind of story. That's pretty exciting for us, too. Any favorite memories of making The Rocketeer while I got you on the horn? Well, you know, one for me was just walking into those sets, you know, because they were... <laughs> It was the first time we saw him in the costume with the helmet on, which was cool. And, and just walking on the set of, of like the nightclub and uh, and just seeing, you know, the people in their costumes. I mean, for me, it's it's those moments of seeing it come to life that are the most wonderful, uh, especially if you're creating a world like recreating 1930s Los Angeles. And, and I remember being on the set and just, you know, talking to Joe and having some laughs and, and um, the actors were all real friendly. And, you know, we got pretty friendly with Bill Campbell and, and um, you know, it was it was great. And even and seeing those guys again at the uh, 20th uh, anniversary, uh, Bill was there and, and Joe and, and it was really fun. I hadn't seen those guys in years and um, it, you know, everybody kind of just picked up where where we left off everybody's attitude was the same and and uh we all enjoyed sitting there watching the movie again and with an audience in the el capitan theater on hollywood boulevard which is where it had premiered we took our kids to see the movie and my daughters had never seen the movie on a big screen and they loved it i mean seeing it with an audience for me that was that was really great that was really fun i've seen it god knows how many times but to see it again in a movie theater with a new digital print and 
with the filmmakers there and the actors there with my kids, you know, that was really fun for me. For me, it was the night they came and shot on the Flash Street, our backlot street at Warner Brothers. And right. We had sort of both of our universes collide. collide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because they took one of our regular street corners. We had that street locked up for the Flash. And the night they were there one night for the outside of the South Seas Club, and I it was that was the night we couldn't really get the picture with the deal. Flash and the Rocketeer together. <laughs> but that was pretty cool. When you guys see this film with an audience, and you have that moment where he's there in the suit and he's got the helmet on, and he's got the Luger in his hand, and there's that American flag there flying, and the spotlight hits him. Is that when the audience cheers? You know they do. It's it's kind of funny. They the the ones that get the, the the moments I remember that get like laughs and kind of a cheer is you know even with the flag behind it. I mean you know sure it's a little corny but I mean it's such a great shot and it's it's something that elicits that kind of old fashioned movie hero thing. You know it's like the uh, the other moment that usually people cheer is when. Right before then, when uh, Eddie finds out that Sinclair is working for the Nazis and, you know, turns the tables on him, he says, uh, you know, I may not earn an honest buck, but I'm not a goddamn Nazi. Whatever the line is, I forget. No, but I'm 100 percent American. I'm 100% American, right. But I'm 100% American. That, that always gets a cheer and a laugh, you know, intentionally. So that's it was made to do both. The other one that I remember always got a laugh for the people who got it. And probably more people got it then than would now is when the uh, Spruce Goose model goes flying off in uh, Howard Hughes' hangar and he goes, uh, ah, the son of a bitch will fly. I mean, that that was a fun moment. And the other one, the, mo- the other moment I-, I love in the movie is the uh, Nazi film that they capture showing the test flight of their rocketeer and the, the Disney-style uh, animation of the uh, uh, Victory Through Air Power type animated film that Howard Hughes shows him. And we wanted to get that right, that little uh, piece of propaganda film right. And so we actually asked Disney if they would show us the film because at the time it wasn't released on video or anything. So one night, Danny and Dave and I what went talking about when Victory we saw Victory Air? Through Air Power. Yeah. And they screened it for us, which was really cool because I hadn't seen it. You know, I remember seeing it on TV when I was a kid or something, but, uh, they showed us the movie. Oh, that must have been awesome. It was. It was really cool. So that's where we got some of the ideas for that. But then, you know, they copied it visually, which was really great. Yeah, I love that animated sequence. That looks so good. And I, just, just that style. You know that Dave Stevens is the test pilot, right, that blows up? Yeah, that was a nice cameo in there. Yep. get into the business? I had attended Cal State Long Beach as an industrial design major. I left school, didn't didn't graduate, but um, I left after several years because I got a job with Chuck Pelly Design Works, which is a, it was, at the time, it was a fairly prestigious um, design firm up in Malibu. And I, I was, I had worked there for about a month Went back to school. Went back to Cal State Long Beach to get my um, my senior project, 
which was a, a teaching machine for elementary school students, you know. As when I was there to collect my stuff, uh, I saw this flyer on the on the pin to the wall of the um, design studio. It's, it was something like, we're looking for model builders, artists, draftsmen to help us on a space movie. They were located in Van Nuys, right next to the airport. And I was living in Long Beach, and Chuck Pelley's studio was in Malibu. So I had about a 90-minute commute to Chuck Pelley's, which was... You know, the traffic wasn't so bad way back then, but it was still a 90-minute commute. I realized that I could cut a half an hour off my commute each way if I was working in Van Nuys and living in Long Beach. So I applied for the job. I was the only person who applied. I I basically showed them slides of some of my work from Cal State Long Beach. I got the job. That was Star Wars. I interviewed with Bob Shepard and John Dykstra. It was intended to be a six-week job doing storyboards, and it turned into, you know, storyboards and designing all the spacecraft and the vehicles and some of the characters. Working with Ralph McQuarrie and and the English art department crew, you know, working remotely with them, you know, trading stuff back and forth. But I had no intention of being in the movie business. You know, I had I had this. You know, a job that I was happy with. It was a lot of fun uh, working for Chuck Pelley. You know, I mean, Chuck was designing cars and cool vehicles and machinery and all kinds of stuff. It was basically what I had gone to school to learn. You know, the stuff had to work. You had to design something that could actually work. So, you know, working on Star Wars was, it was, you know, nothing had to work. It just had to look like it worked. And it had to look, had to look cool in the process. So it was, it was a, it was a whole different kind of a world than what I had been trained to do, but it was a lot of fun. And, um, you know, I worked for George for 10 years. Uh, after that, he sent me to film school. I made a nine minute black and white non sync sound film that, um, uh, I showed to Jeffrey Katzenberg at Disney when they were getting, when they had fired their director off this picture called teeny weenies. And, um, that, that, which turned into Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. And, you know, to my surprise, they hired me, not necessarily based on the strength of the student film, but I gave a bunch of notes on what I thought was wrong with the script. Starting with the title, I hope. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, Jeffrey Katzenberg himself came up with the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids title. And we all thought it was awful when he suggested it. We said, no, that's guy, that's a stupid title. We had a, we had a long list of, of a potential title because nobody liked Teeny Weenies, but um, he turned out to be, uh, you know, to have a to have a good idea, and we we accepted it, and you know, went on to they went on to make some more Honey I did something to the kids or babies or houses or whatever. So um, you know, and it worked out okay. But um, you know, the only issue with something like that is you you when you make a financially successful film like that. That's what they want you to keep making, you know, over and over again. I turned them all down until The Rocketeer came along. Because even though it was, you know, it was sort of a sci-fi fantasy kids thing, it was um, it was a graphic novel that I was that I had been familiar with, and I thought it was a cool thing. And uh, that was the second picture I did. But, um, 
you know, Hollywood loves to pigeonhole you. They love to put you in a in a box, you know, and do just keep doing what you did because it was successful. You have to break out of that sometimes. I'm still trying to get over the fact that your whole career hinged on seeing a flyer. Yeah, pretty much. Um, <clears throat> and the only, uh, you know, I had to, this was this was sort of late in the summer. It was it was in end of August, and we were supposed to pick up the senior projects, you know, in June. And they and I was working, and they kept saying, "Hey, come down and get your senior project. It's in the display case, and everybody else has picked theirs up, so come get it." And I never went and got it. And they said, finally, I, the, one of the TAs called me. He said, look, we're going to throw it out if you don't come get it. So come get it. I mean, what's more surprising to me that nobody else applied for the job. It was summertime, and there weren't a lot of students around. But um, after I went and got the job, I told a couple of guys about it, Steve Gawley, for one, and uh, Ira McNabb. And they came up and applied and got the jobs but uh you know steve was a model builder and ira was a draftsman but i was i mean it was it baffled me that nobody else wanted to work on a science fiction movie you know it, it, it sounded like great fun to me i didn't have this lifelong desire to be an industrial designer i just wanted to do fun stuff you know you know life is like that you it's who knows what would have happened if you'd taken that other road you know it's all it's all a series of dominoes you're credited as being like a art director and doing some of the visual effects and stuff and working, obviously, with ILM. When it comes to something like, I don't know, like a Raiders of the Lost Ark, what are some of the effects or miniatures that you helped work on? Most of my involvement with Raiders was the sequence at the end, the opening of the arc sequence. I mean, other than that, there weren't a lot of, uh, a lot of visual effects in that film, really. You know, there was the... There was a cloud tank stuff when you know the, when the art gets open, but and there was a model submarine and things like that that I was all, I was involved with, but it was really those were mostly oversized miniatures, and taking them and either you know shooting them at water or shooting um, doing things like you know the model trucks and things shooting them against the green screen and they go over the cliff. I mean, I mean there wasn't a whole lot of groundbreaking visual effects in Raiders, but the 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 end sequence the the they call it the wrath of god sequence Stephen had had it storyboarded twice before by two different storyboard artists and he didn't like the way it was going so he you know we were the island was doing the effects and I don't remember if I had known Stephen before that or not but he came to me and said can you take these sequences here's the script the sequence isn't working can you take the best of this group and this and the best of this set of boards and you know what's in the script and just and draw me a whole new sequence for it? I spent about a month on that. You know, I did probably three, three or four different sequences before I ever did one that I handed to him and said, "What about this?" You know, because I just I wanted to try to figure it out on my own and see what sort of what worked and what didn't work, and I finally gave it to him. And he liked it. Said, "Yeah, this is cool. Let's do this." I didn't start from scratch. I had other had some other people to work with to to pick from, but I added a bunch of new stuff of my own. He seemed to like it, and uh, that was most of my involvement. I, I mean, I did the. I also I painted the map that you see in the background when they're traveling, you know, in the in the seaplane and stuff like that. But it was largely the Wrath of God sequence that I was involved with. 
you're credited as being the aerial sequence designer for Always. What did that involve? That was actually a, a, a lot of fun. Stephen decided he wanted to do the aerial sequences in Always the same way that the Leindecker brothers used to do them, or Leidecker, I guess it was, uh, would do them in the 30s and 40s where they would just build these gigantic miniatures they were big enough to to sort of behave like, you know, full size airplanes, and um, and shoot them either against the sky or against uh, you know smoke and flame and everything. And they and it, they looked pretty good. We built uh, one fifth scale miniatures of the of the A twenty six and the and the PBY, and we shot them. Uh, in a place uh, out in central the Central Valley, Tracy, California, where every day at about four o'clock the wind picks up and it blows forty miles an hour, thirty miles an hour for a couple of hours, and, and it's it's so dependable. It happens every day in the summertime. So we got out there. We hung we hung the models from wires, and we put smoke in the air about 100 yards away, so that by the time it got to the plane, it had, you know, broken up and looked like clouds. And that was for the, you know, the aerial sequences, day sequences. And we also had a miniature set that was basically scaffolding and aluminum foil and Christmas trees. We bought, you know, probably thousands of Christmas trees and uh, set fire to them and, you know, flew to planes over them and through them um, for the day sequences. And then for the night sequences, we we had a, a part of the old Bethlehem steel plant in, in uh, down at the Harbor area in San Francisco. And this was this, this huge, long building that they had either stored steel or built, I don't know what they, processed steel or something, but it was this, it, it was almost like a blimp hanger, this gigantic building. And uh, we did the same thing there. We put the this for the night sequences. We put the this terrain. We built the terrain out of scaffolding, filled it up with Christmas trees. You know, the planes were hanging from wires over the, on this overhead carriage rig, and we'd set fire to the Christmas trees and fly these planes through them. And uh, you know, it was it was a lot of fun. I mean, we only had to get a couple of shots a day because the stuff was so, so complicated. You know, we couldn't. Especially in Tracy, we couldn't get more than, and we were lucky if we got two shots a day, just because of the, you know, the complication of getting the smoke in the air and hanging the models, and you know, we we tried radio controlling the models at one time, and they they all crashed. You know, we had these guys who said, oh yeah, we can we can radio control these and put you know lawnmower engines in them, and they'll do great, and they all crashed. None of them worked. How did you manage to? finally get them to go uh we we uh put electric motors in the you know where the, where the gas motors had been and we hung them from wires and we had we had little little motors that vibrated the wires so you didn't see them you know you couldn't you couldn't see the wires that supported them we just had this big overhead rig and we put we would hang that from this gigantic arm that was attached to a truck so we could fly them through if we needed to, you know, if we wanted to see the trees passing in the background, we'd have to move the, the plane because it was, you know, just smoke was easy. You could just, because the plane was static and you would just sort of move the camera around on the ground to look like it's another plane is, is, uh, following it. 
but when we had to move it past the trees, it became a whole different thing. We had to, we had this old truck with an arm on it, you know, and we'd drive it through there and burn the Christmas tree. We, we burned so many Christmas trees that I think that, you know, there was a shortage that year of Christmas trees. I think a lot of people didn't get their Christmas tree because we, we burned thousands and thousands of Christmas trees. You monster. I know. It was great. Of course, it was August, so there was time to find some more, you know. So how did you manage to break out of that pigeonhole of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and get the Rocketeer Project? Well, getting the Rocketeer Project was, was easy because it was Disney. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids was Disney and Rocketeer was Disney, so they had been offering me stuff. I'd just been saying, no, I don't want to do that. You know, other, like the sequel to Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, they said, let's do a sequel. Said, no, I'm not, I, don't to, I don't want to get stuck in that. So I, I went back to them uh, and said, because I knew that they had the rights to the Rocketeer, they had the they had the rights to the graphic novel. I said, how about this? And I think there was another director who had been attached, but they, you know, they were, I guess they were disagreeing on the on what the movie was. And, uh, you know, after a few weeks, they said, yeah, let's 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 do the Rocketeer. And it was it was it was a tough project because they had a certain figure that they wanted to spend on the movie. And we all felt like it wasn't quite enough. You know, there was some there were some great action sequences that got cut out of the well, they didn't get they didn't get cut out of the the movie, they got cut out of the script. We never shot them. But um you know, I mean it's it's weird. It was um it had sort of since become this cult, you know, classic and at the time we thought, Oh well that didn't work. Let's go do something else and and it's it's gotten more popular in the years since it's uh since it came out, I guess as a lot of those sort of cult films do. Did you use some of that learning that you had from you know your previous experiences to do? Uh, obviously, you weren't doing the special effects, but you probably also didn't put up with somebody telling you that you couldn't get a shot knowing how to do some of these effects works. Uh, I was working with all the guys that I knew from ILM. You know, ILM did the did the visual effects, so you know they knew that I knew. And that what was possible and what wasn't, and what we could afford and what wasn't. But I had a good, uh, I had a really good crew, you know, working on this show. I had Ken Ralston doing the, doing some of the animation, the, the puppet animation. It was a good, good project. Jim Jim Bissell uh, was my production designer. Hiro Narita, who had shot Honey I Shrunk the Kids, was the DP, and you know, so it was sort of like I was around a lot of people. I I was familiar with and knew pretty well. Some of those sequences, especially the opening airplane sequence, just amazing. How much of that is practical and how much is effects? It's all practical. There are no there are no effects in the opening sequence at all. We had this um we there was a, just fortunately there was this one of these G B replicas for sale down in Riverside. You know, it was, it was exactly the plane that we needed. I was telling the guys at Disney, I said, you know, this plane is is now for sale. Somebody's going to buy it if we don't. And the guy wanted $25,000 for it. And they said, well, we'll have to check on that. And, I, and you know, it, it, you know, trying to get a movie studio to just go out and, you know, drop twenty five grand, which was nothing really for the plane. The guy had built it himself. Bill Turner had built it. And he just, he basically just wanted to get his money out of it. It was a flying replica. You know, the studio, they said, yeah, yeah, well, let us look into it. I said, well, if you don't look into it right now, somebody else is going to come in and buy it, and then what are we going to do, build one? You know, so 
I rather than wait for them, I went and bought it myself. And, you know, I, I gave the guy a check for $25,000. So I owned the plane. So, you know, just to, just so we had it, so we didn't have to worry about somebody else grabbing it. Um, and I sold it to Disney, of course, for the same, I should have doubled the price, but I sold it to him for, for 25000 And I think when it was, when we finished with it, Disney gave it to the Museum of Flight in uh, Santa Monica. I think it's still there. I'm not sure. I haven't seen it lately. But uh, Craig Hosking, the pilot who flew, you know, everything we did with the GB, he flew. And he, he said, you know, he, he looked at the plane he analyzed it really closely. He says, I'll make 10 takeoffs and landings. He says, that's all I'm going to do. I says, and he says, that's really pushing it. Because, you know, all the original planes crashed in the 30s. And, you know, most of the pilots who flew them were killed. And uh, Bill Turner had made some improvements in this one to make it a little bit safer. But it still wasn't the safest plane to fly. You had to, you really had to fly it all the time. You couldn't, you couldn't ever just relax. You know, because um, like you can with a, a Cessna or something, it'll, it'll spy itself. You just take your hands off the controls. This thing would, you know, it would it would just sort of roll over and crash into the bean field, you know, if uh, if you didn't fly it all the time. So anyway, so Craig Hoskins made his ten takes off, takeoffs and landings, and he actually I think he did it in nine, but he said that was one of the most frightening airplanes he'd ever flown. He said, "Do you?" You know, you you you're basically you're sitting inside this bubble. That's the cockpit is almost the same size as your helmet. You know, and you're just, you're sort of. He says it's, it's really claustrophobic. You there's no room to move for anything in there. It was, it, it was built strictly for racing, and um, you know it's not. It, he said it was no fun, but he did it. He's an amazing pilot. When Billy gets in the plane and they put the top on, I was just like, oh my God, that is so tiny and so tight on his head. Yeah, it's a, it's a tiny little plane. It's it's basically all engine, you know. Uh, now, we did have a, uh, we had a three-cockpit plane for this for the stuff where he's flying, where he's, you know, he takes off and flies around everything, and that was a, uh, that was a biplane that had uh, a cockpit in the rear for the actor, a cockpit in the center for the cameraman and the pilot sat up front. And so we did all the aerial stuff with him in the, in the GB in that airplane. We shot it all up in Santa Monica or uh, Santa Maria, you know, at the airport there in in Santa Maria. But, um, when we, when we sent off our first day's dailies of him in the, in the cockpit, the note we got back from Disney was the creative executive in charge said the process stuff with Bill Campbell looks fake. And we said, Oh really? Well, that's really, that's really him in the plane. Great studio note. But, uh, we had a lot of interesting aircraft for that. You know, Bill Turner brought that other red racing plane was his. We had some, you know, movie pilots who flew the rest of the planes, but, um, it was really a lot of fun having all that having that that box of toys to play with, you know. I'm most very impressed by the look of the film. It just, well, it captures Dave Stevens' comic book so well. Mm-hmm. And then just that, 
I guess, Art Deco style to it. I mean, the from the original teaser poster on, I've always been impressed with the visual style of the film. Well, we were trying to, to basically, you know, we wanted to recreate California in the 30s. I felt that, you know, what your vision, what the what the public's vision of California in the 30s is basically off a postcard, you know, with orange groves and sunshine and everything that you, you get in Southern California. And so we sort of designed it and chose the color palette and even, you know, composed some of the shots to look like they were literally, you know, these, these classic hand-tinted postcards from the 30s. You know, and I, I'm I'm really happy with the way it looks. It really it really captures the feeling of the '30s. I think. When it came to casting the film, what kind of look or what kind of feeling were you going for with the people that you ended up in the cast? Well, I wanted somebody. Um, you know, for for Cliff's sequel, I really wanted somebody that looked a lot like Dave Stevens' character. All his characters are sort of you know prototypes of of that whole sort of. Republic serial sort of period comic book look. I mean, the you know, he had um, the Creeper, you know, the Rondo Hatton character. And he had, uh, you know, everyone had had that sort of sort of prototype look to them, you know, of the, of the 30s. And uh, that was all, you know, great and everything. I, I, I knew we could find those characters, but I really wanted to find, I wanted to find somebody who could play, to, to play Cliff Secord, who looked like, the Dave Stevens character, you know, I, Dave Stevens actually drew Cliff Secord from himself. I mean, he basically, you know, that's that's Dave in the comic book. You know, he he, he uses his own face to you know to draw from and to and to pose. But he, I think he he sort of enhances his looks. He gives him a much more chiseled chiseled look. You know, but um, I thought Bill Campbell looked exactly like uh, Cliff Secord. I thought he was uh, he was very well cast. Yeah, if I was him, I would draw myself with Betty Page as my main squeeze as well. Right, right, exactly. We we, we wanted to use the name Betty Page, you know, for all kinds of reasons. Mostly because Betty Page tried to sort of disappear, and she moved to Florida, and you know, didn't want people knowing who she was or anything. So we had to change the name. But um, I think Jennifer Connelly more than fills the role. Of Betty Page. Is it true that Richard Marks was once considered for the role? Richard Marks. That would be the singer uh, from the 1980s. Uh, did he go by the name Marky Marks? Marky Mark? Mm, no. Who am I thinking of? You're thinking of Mark Wahlberg. Oh right. He wasn't considered for it. it you know, there someone may have, some executive may have said, "Hey, how about Richard Marks?" But nobody took it seriously enough to take it a step further. Uh, the only other person, well, actually, there were three. There were three in the running. There was John Corbett and Bill Paxton and uh, and Billy Campbell. And um, we screen tested all of them. And Bill Campbell had been a rugby player, and he just moved better than anybody else. You know, he just he he moved gracefully, and he. He had a really nice physique, and he just he looked the part, you know. To me, wasn't hard to cast. We, you know, Bill Bill uh, Paxton would have been the would have been the, the the backup. I think he was he was close, but um, he wasn't quite didn't have quite the iconic look that uh, Bill Campbell did. 
I'm always impressed with just some of the character actors that you had in the film, like John Polito and William Sanderson. And then what is the story, though, with Clint Howard? He just kind of shows up for like one scene or one shot, really, and just kind of disappears. Yeah. Um, well, you know, he was he played one of uh, one of Eddie's guys. But, uh, you know, the casting director, Nancy Foy, was good friends with Clint. And I met Clint. And I, I, I'm, I'm good friends with Ron Howard as well, and uh, I think I had met Clint before uh, the Rocketeer. But you know, I think he's just—he's just one of those guys that, you know, he's been around so long. Everybody knows him. Everybody likes him. And he was—you uh, know—it was pretty—it was a pretty simple part, pretty easy to do. Come in for a day and shoot it, have lunch, and you know, you're done. Were there any things that you shot that didn't make the final cut for the film? Yeah, there were a few things, although, you know, I don't think there were any scenes, any entire scenes that we shot and weren't used, but, um, you know, some of the scenes went on longer. You always end up, you know, trimming things down to to get it down to, you know, a, a good running running length. But, um, you know, there were things that we wanted to shoot. There was a whole sequence of Grauman's Chinese where he uh, he's flying overhead, and I forget what happens, but he gets, he gets startled by a a searchlight and he sort of does a crash landing as someone is having, it's a footprint ceremony at Grauman's Chinese and he lands in the cement and then blasts off again. Somebody comes in with a pin. I think it's Betty Davis is, ha- is having her hands put in the cement and uh, somebody grabs the pins and writes the rocketeer in the cement. And then of course it stays there forever. You know, <laughs> one of those, that one didn't make the cut. Were there any legal problems as far as using people's likenesses in the film? I mean, I know you talked about Betty Page, but like, you know, you've kind of got some nods to W.C. Fields and Clark Gable and then with uh, Rondo Hatton and all this. No, I mean, we had, um, and, you know, there weren't any, the only legal problem we had was with Artie Shaw, oddly enough, because um, the band leader ended up looking like Artie Shaw. They gave the you know the casting people the sort of extras casting came to me with three guys for the band leader, and one was sort of you know overweight and short, and the other one was really tall and skinny, and there's this guy in the middle who just sort of looked like anybody else. So yeah, I said, oh, you know, he can do it, and he, I said, you know how to look like you're playing the clarinet, and so he you know figured that out. He took a couple of took a, I think he he was a musician. And they were actually they were all musicians, but he didn't he didn't specialize in the clarinet. I think he played a saxophone. So he says, "Yeah, I can fake play the clarinet." So you know, the movie comes out. Artie Shaw uh, appears and says, "That guy looks exactly like me." And he he sued Disney. He sued he sued me, but there's a pointless to suing me because I didn't have any money. But he sued Disney, and I think they paid him off. They paid him like you know, chump change just to make it go away. You know, no one, no one said, "Hey, let's go find a band leader that looks exactly like Artie Shaw." They just gave me three choices. So if they had, if they had chosen to fight it, you know, they would have won. They just, it wasn't worth, you know, paying their lawyers to, to, to get involved. I have the distinction of being sued by Artie Shaw. What were some of the biggest challenges that the film gave you? Mostly, and I think the biggest challenge was to, to, to make it look like this, this guy was actually flying. We had to sort of redesign the rocket pack so it wasn't. I mean, in the in the in the graphic novel, it's just like a big 
it's like a, a wastebasket size drum and it's just one rocket. It's, you know, he's got it strapped to his back and we, we did a mock-up of that. It looked awful because it stuck out so far. So we, we made it two rockets sort of joined, you know, together in this nice streamlined shape and it fit closer to his back. And, uh, you know, that was, that was one challenge, but that, the other thing was getting him, um, you know, once he's got that thing on his back and he's hanging from wires, making it look like he is actually flying. And I think, you know, some shots work and some shots don't work so well, but, um, you know, I think that overall in the, in the, in the, in the cut, my, my biggest disappointment was that we couldn't use Billy Campbell for all the flying stuff. We had to use stunt guys and some of them will look like Bill Campbell, you know, in prof in, in, in silhouette and some of them don't. There were several of the guys we used, but, um, you, know, you want your star you, who you who you've cast because he looks great in the outfit. He's like, you know, he's six three and he's, you know, built like a bodybuilder. He looks fantastic. You want him to, you you want that guy in the in the suit to look like him. But you know, for all kinds of reasons, safety and everything else, you can't have your actor doing everything. So, and isn't it convenient that he's got a helmet on? You can't tell who it is anyway. So, in fact, I'm mean, even in one shot when. When he flies up next to the airline, the airliner, and he salutes the stewardess, and then he's accidentally, but when he salutes or he switches off his thing, that's me in the suit. We had it, we shot it at ILM. We didn't have any stuntmen around, and uh, I think I'm just lying on a board. I don't think I'm suspended from wires. I I think it was just on some platform. We just needed a quick cut of it, but um, movie magic. You became Billy Campbell. Like I say, it's a good thing you've got a helmet on. How was the film received when it came out? Uh, it, 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 uh, you know, it didn't make money right away. It had a disappointing first weekend, which is the, which determines, you know, the, the future of its box office. Um, but it made, it made money. It didn't lose money, but it, you know, of course they all try to analyze why it didn't. There were theories that because of the one sheet, which was the only, really the only one sheet and, and you know, billboard and poster that they they use. We all loved it, that Art Deco artwork. There was a theory that people thought it was animated uh, because of that, which I don't know if I buy that or not. I think it's I think it's a lot of different things. You know, I think it's a lot of times you don't know who your audience is when you're cutting a trailer and, and you know, and I think that it just didn't find its audience right away. I mean, it, it, it certainly seems to have found it later. I think they... You know, just released it in Blu-ray, and they talked about after about the first 15 years, they started talking about a sequel when it became really popular again. They were thinking, you know, how do we how do we make a sequel to this? And they haven't done it yet. I'm sort of glad that they haven't. I hope they don't because I can't imagine what it would be. I'd hate to see it contemporary. You know, I hate to see somebody dig up the rocket. You know, in an old hangar and. 2015 and, <laughs> and and use it but you know what hey they'll do what they want to do back we're talking about the rocketeer as you heard the film was not particularly well received upon its release but has gained quite a following in years since now chris you covered it on the culture cast and uh, what was the consensus over there on your show sir 
the consensus was everybody liked it. I want to say there were four of us talking about it. Three of the four other than myself had not seen it. And they were surprised that they had never seen it because obviously the, the on our on our show it was about it was people my age. So they had never seen it and it came out around when we were kids. So they, they really liked it. I was glad that the movie still can kind of hit with people my age who aren't just looking for Marvel quick cuts action comic book movies. I was I was really happy that it was still kind of relevant for people my age. Now you had a chance to talk to Billy Campbell. What was that like? That on a personal level was insane for me because I got to talk with the Rocketeer, obviously, and as a five-year-old kid, if I had told my five-year-old self that he would have been like, that's insane. Billy Campbell was nicest guy. Uh, he took we talked for about an hour and a half about the film. He was really great. Uh, I, you know, it's just, he was, he didn't have a bad thing to say about anybody. Him and Alan Arkin are apparently still great friends. He talked a little bit about the fact that him and uh, Jennifer Connelly dated after the film. Uh, they fell in love on set. He said that, uh, when he walked on set initially to audition, he was coming from working at a Renaissance festival. So he had a long beard and long hair and they were like, well, come back and re-audition. And so he read the comics in between that time and realized that he was a splitting image of the the character of Cliff Secord. So he went and shaved and actually looked presentable. And when he came back in, they were like, yeah, we want you. You look just like him. But I mean, he was just one of the one of the best people I've talked to so far. There are some great videos out there, and we'll link to them from the website. There are videos of tryouts and um, seeing John Corbett playing the Rocketeer is interesting. Um, there's some other kind of surprising folks that show up as far as these uh, tapes and everything. So yeah, we'll uh, definitely link to those because seeing them is, is quite a treat. And I always dig that kind of uh, you know taped auditions and seeing some of the possibilities of other people that might have played these characters. And I got to say, Billy Campbell did one hell of a job when it came to being the Rocketeer. And I really kind of wish that he had been able to I don't know, parlay this into being a household name. I mean, he's not missing in action. He's done a lot of work. But for me, he was just such a great hero in this role. And I really would have liked to have seen him be able to continue in those kind of roles. Well, and he, after The Rocketeer, he was actually, actually, I guess it was around the time of The Rocketeer, he was in contention for the role of Riker on Star Trek The Next Generation. Wow. Which, if he had landed that role, I mean, we'd be having a completely different conversation about uh, Billy Campbell's kind of impact on cinema. But that kind of always struck me as just the Rocketeer was kind of a missed opportunity for his career. Uh, I mean, obviously not for a lot of people that love the film, but in the financial sense, a missed opportunity. And then Star Trek, uh, another missed opportunity. But I'm, I am with you. I wish that he had been a bigger name than he ended up being. So we thought about or talked a little bit about the gritty reboot of the Rocketeer. And I don't know if you guys have read this comic book. I wouldn't be surprised if you hadn't. Um, it was uh, one that a friend of mine, Mike Thompson turned me on to. It's called Ex Machina by Brian K. Vaughn. And it basically is this kind of commander Cody Rocketeer type character 
now um it was basically set in the 90s and into the 2000s and it is the i think it's the mayor of new york it's been a long time since i've read this one and i have to say it didn't make a huge impact on me it was really distracting the artwork for it and i'll talk about that in a second but the it was a character who was a superhero very much in the style of the Rocketeer as far as having this rocket pack. And he ended up basically averting the terrorist attacks of 2001, like basically saved us from 9-11. The towers were still standing in Ex Machina, and he ends up being the mayor of New York. And then it's this whole, like, him wanting to still be a superhero, but then being trapped in this political world and blah, 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 blah. It got real old real fast. And it also had this strange art style where it was like they would take pictures of people and then almost like trace over them. So the artwork looked very realistic, but it also had this kind of weird cartoony type thing it, it it's almost like bad rotoscoping so it just got really distracting and after a while i just couldn't hang with the story and i know it didn't run for very long but that to me is what a a type of reboot of the rocketeer could be in the in the 21st century and i don't want anything to do with it there so there i mean <laughs> so there i mean i agree i don't think that a rocketeer reboot would 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 no pun intended i don't think it would fly in this day and age with the comic book movie going crowd the way it is uh they would want something the studio would probably want something more dark and gritty um maybe not disney since they haven't really gone that route with marvel yet yet being the key word uh but i wouldn't i wouldn't want to see another rocketeer as much as i would i wouldn't i would kind of like to see the rocketeer show up though in other comics and other media that kind of stuff i mean the rocketeer making an appearance in something like agent carter i think that would be pretty sweet and agent carter if folks don't know it's the spin-off of agents of shield and captain america so it's this agent who's back during this age and you know folks who have seen captain america the first avenger and some of these other films these other marvel films you guys can definitely see how howard stark is very howard hughes so it kind of plays in that real world of the era but also injecting these marvel characters injecting this comic book sensibility into it but i think that agent carter is probably one of the more grounded in reality kind of things and i think that's what i appreciated about that first captain america and even the second captain america is both of these yes captain america does have superpowers but it feels very much more like in the second movie and the end of the first movie, it's more a man out of time story. And in the first movie, it's so much him coming to grips with previously being the guy who was picked on, who had a huge heart but didn't have a huge anything else, and then being able to exude, you know, to to fill in you know the 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 body then matched the heart and him as this patriot and that whole idea of the patriots who find out that maybe what they're fighting for isn't as 
you know, apple pie as they thought it was. I love those kind of stories. And I think that's definitely where it went in the winter soldier, but I think there's some of that going on in the first movie too. And I, I love that Joe Johnston was able to do both the rocket man and captain America, because I think that those guys kind of would live in a, in a similar world. And that would have been awesome if there had been, I mean, it wouldn't have happened obviously, but if the Rocketeer had been in the first Captain America movie, because that would have been a, like you said, with Agent Carter, I mean, they've kind of, Marvel has split their, has kind of split their universe into two distinct parts. There's the classic era with Howard Stark and Agent Carter, and then there's the now with everything else, pretty much. Whenever I watched the first Captain America movie, knowing that Joe Johnston directed it, uh, versus the Rocketeer, I always felt like his director's kind of vision was never fully realized because it was Disney and Marvel playing it safe with those first couple Marvel movies, which Marvel was very much playing it safe with those first couple Marvel movies. I mean, they never would have made Guardians of the Galaxy right out the gate. They made that because they were finally in a spot where they could take a chance. But I don't think that they took the chances on Captain America, the first Avenger that they could have in the same vein that they kind of took a chance on the Rocketeer with Joe Johnston and it wasn't uh, success, you know, successful. They could have still been maybe harboring some resentment towards the Rocketeer not being the big budget success that they were hoping it would be. Well, fortunately, I did get a chance to talk to Mr. Johnston about that. And we have a bonus interview with him because he was so gracious with his time. He was just amazing. I mean, he's one of these guys where wrote to his agent and he wrote back to me personally and was just like, okay, what do you need? Let's set this thing up. So I ended up talking to him, the interview you guys just heard, talking to him about the Rocketeer, talking to him about his early days, you know, working on Star Wars and working at Lucasfilm and all this stuff. And it's like, we come to the end of the conversation, he has to run out to dinner, and it's like, wait, 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 I still have so many things to ask you. And he ends up giving me another whole hour of his time. So, available over on the projection booth, you can go out, and you might have already listened to it, because that will drop before this episode drops. And he talks about Jurassic Park 3, about Captain America, about Jumanji, about these other projects. And it gives us the exclusive scoop on the page master. So just in case you guys have always been wondering about the page master with Macaulay Culkin, now it has been told. So definitely check that out. I kind of just want to go into the next one a little bit here. I wanted to play the interview that we did with John Polito and Polito. Uh, as I said before, he plays Bigelow in the film. Polito's one of these guys who I just love whenever he shows up in anything. He just always makes films so much better when he's there. And Rob, I know you dig him, especially when he's in the Coen Brothers films. Oh, yeah. This guy was great. I'm talking to him, and we're doing this interview. We're going along, and at one point, he's talking about how much he loves Orson Welles, which to me is like, you know, okay, great. We have some common ground. We can talk about Orson Welles. Well, Orson Welles, of course, makes Touch of Evil, and one of our listeners had posted on our Facebook group when I said, hey, we're going to be talking to John Polito. He says, ask him about Akeem Tamaroff. Now, Akeem Tamaroff, for those guys who don't know, he played Uncle Joe Grandi in Touch of Evil. And I got to say, Akeem Tamaroff, in that movie at least, he's a little disgusting. He's the uh, heavier, 
ethnic looking guy and he just uh, he plays such an unsavory character so i really it took me a long time before i said to polito you know we're talking about orson welles films and i have to say you know you've always reminded me a little bit or are you a fan of akim tamarov and immediately he he basically just stops in his tracks and i'm like oh shit what did i do did i just offend john polito and he goes how's the audio quality and i'm like no it's pretty good you know you're a little bassy but it's pretty good he's just like you know what here here's my home phone number call me back and we'll we'll do this over again with better audio quality i'm just like holy shit i've never had any of our interview subjects do that for me and so what you're about to hear is our interview with john polito and it's it's take two, basically. So we had talked for a good, I don't know, 5, 10, 15 minutes already. And then we basically just start from scratch and go on from there. So it's quite an amazing guy. And I was just so honored for us to be able to talk to him. So let's go ahead and play that John Polito interview with no further ado. Can you tell me, how did you get into the business? I was a theater guy. Very fortunate that in my high school, a Christian brother named Dominic Garvey, who actually just passed away a week ago Friday, he came to our high school and got me involved in serious theater. Uh, And he was working at Villanova University, taking his third PhD at the time, and got me into Villanova University. And from Villanova University, I went right into the theater. I didn't do much uh, film work. But when I was 29, I headed to L.A. I won an Obie Award, which is the Off-Broadway Actor Award. And after that, I whisked myself to Los Angeles uh, trying to get into a television show called The Gangster Chronicles. I arrived on a Friday, and Monday I went to the audition and got the job, like the first day, my first audition, and uh, did that show when I was 30, and then ran back to New York and uh, pretty much did theater. And then... uh, uh, Death of a Salesman I uh, did with uh, Hoffman and Malkovich on Broadway in a very small part, but that part went on. We, we filmed it for television. And then I went and did a couple of uh, movies, uh, The Highlander, uh, Fire with Fire, a couple of weird little films that uh, The Highlander is still around uh, in terms of uh, uh, being a, um, a bit of a classic for what it was. And, uh, and then I did a show called Crime Story, in my later 30s with um, uh, Steve Lang and Dennis Farina, uh, Michael Mann's show. But really, film work for me came together with the Coen brothers. When I was 39, I got the part of the 50-ish-year-old man in, uh, in uh, Miller's Crossing. And working with the Coens in those five films that I worked with them was probably the best work I've ever done. Yeah, I first remember you from things like Rima Williams or when you were in uh, Chud, a brief turn in that. Uh, You've always been a favorite. Whenever you would show up, you would bring something to the party that just nobody else would. Well, I'm glad about that. The thing is, for me, I'm an old-fashioned character guy. That's pretty much where it, it stands. I was a fan of the old Warner Brothers films. I was a fan of uh, 
of the character people, even the leading men that were character people. I think there's a couple of those right now that are brilliant, but back in the, the television age, was when I saw these films that had been made much before my time, they were shown on television, and I got to become familiar with uh, the Orson Welles figures, the um, uh, uh, Charles Lawton, Sidney Greenstreet, um, Peter Lorre, um, those were the actors that I related the most to. You were naming off some of my favorite people, especially with uh, Laurie and Green Street. You know, their their turn together in uh, Maltese Falcon and the other films that they were in was just terrific. And here's something I did: they released a DVD of, of a collection of the Bogart films, including a couple of that were not uh, very successful, and. In, in that series of five films, including the great ones, they had a bunch of character people get together, and we did this thing called um, something about who's that character or something like that. And all of us were, in, it were uh, interviewed. Well, one of the best interviews, one of the best interviews at that time, was one woman said the great gift of character people is that in those films, you knew who they were as soon as they entered the frame. They don't have backup stuff. They don't have the uh, back histories that are unfamiliar. You instantly kind of know them by the face, who they are and what they're going to bring to the film. And therefore, there's a comfort in watching them because you're immediately in familiar territory. I think Walter Brennan was a great, great actor that had that gift, uh, who like won awards when he was... I think he won an Oscar in his 30s when he was playing some old guy from the 60s. You know, those those were the people that, that is the gift of being a character guy. And I believe in this day and age, there are character performances happening from leading people that are just brilliant. Everything on True Detective right now, all of those people are doing character work, the very best of it. What was it like working with the Coen brothers on, uh, especially on those first films, kind of getting to know them on Miller's Crossing and Barton Fink? Miller's Crossing was amazing because they had done uh, Blood Simple and then Raising Arizona. Miller's was a very different kind of film, and I think sort of a less um, underground film. It was almost like a tribute to to the film noir films. Matter of fact, they just had a... uh, a tribute uh, to uh, at the Film Noir Festival in Palm Springs and asked me to speak at it uh, and showed Miller's Crossing. I hadn't really seen it on the wi- on widescreen for about 20 years, and it was a beautiful thing to see again because it was such a tribute to those films, but also but their own touches. And then Barton Fink, right on the heels of that, is what I think, even though American critics were still questioning, questioning the Coens. As a matter of fact, the, the, the New York critics were, the New York Times was really bitchy about Miller's Crossing, which opened up the New York Film Festival in, uh, in 1990 or 91, and they just, they really critiqued it, uh, saying, uh, I would say they criticized it rather, saying that they weren't they were in the wrong genre, they couldn't do it, Marsha Gay couldn't wear the dresses, blah 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 blah. Everything was off and now of course they call it a classic. But it was a tough road. It didn't make much money, Millers. It's now become a classic. Barton Fink, on the other hand, was sort of a classic instantly because Khan recognized it as a great film. Therefore they came in with that uh, cachet. 
And then I did Hudsucker uh, at the same time I was doing The Crow at the same studio, and that was a little cameo. And when you're working with these Cohen brothers there, when they were doing Miller's, it was such a joy to realize what, they, what their style was. They are old-fashioned storyboard guys. They, they know what they want, and they just want you to bring alive the frames that they have pictured. And that's re- or imagined in their, in their process of prep. A preparation, and that is the joy for me. I find it. I always found the best theater directors are the ones that blocked you. They told you where to stand, what to do, and then you made it your own. I like structure, and I think the gift of the Cohens is you find yourself working within their structure and enjoying every minute of it. I don't. I don't think I've ever seen an actor say, "Well, I don't really think that frame works for me." You know, I don't think that's. I'm sure it has happened to them somewhere along the line, but it never happened in front of me, because for the most part, you feel like you're in safe territory as an actor, and you feel like you're in genius territory as an actor. Now, I know you're a fan of Orson Welles. You always reminded me a little bit of the guy that worked with him a few times, Akeem Tamaroff. Were you a fan of his? I was a great fan of Akeem Tamaroff. I felt... As a matter of fact, I pushed uh, poor George Clooney. I was telling them, telling my agents, get me that Akeem Tamaroff uh, role in Ocean's Eleven. Of course, it wasn't done by Akeem Tamaroff. It was brilliantly done by uh, Elliot Gould who did that part brilliantly. But anyway, back to Akeem. Uh, Akeem Tamaroff in um, Touch of Evil, one of the best performances ever uh, in so many films. But the funny part for Akeem Tamaroff, because uh, he was a great character guy back in the day, was that he was in For Whom the Bell Tolls. And he had this wonderful scene where Gary Cooper gave him a watch and told him to watch how many people were going through something. I don't remember exactly how it went, but I remember one night watching it. I'm listening to that accent, that crazy, and I'm you know, doing my little accent here and thinking how generic the accent was, but it's really the way he spoke. And uh, I, I, you give me a wash. Oh, my God, he's great. And it was a wonderful moment where I thought, I got to do that guy somewhere along the line. He was just a great character, man. And I was compared to him once or twice over the years by the critics. And that was the joy of my life. I have to ask, you have such a wonderful and distinct voice. Did you have that when you were growing up, or did you? No, I was. I was actually kind of high voiced. I was a tenor, and I remember I wanted to talk. I loved the way that people spoke when they spoke deeply, or or the gruff thing. I just loved it. And I'm not a New Yorker, so I don't have that New York thing. I'm a Philadelphia boy, so you had to find some kind of a voice. So I would smoke a pack of cigarettes a day and I would try to lower my voice and try to lower my voice and eventually it just ruined my voice and turned into this thing. I remember when I was in the theater when I was for the, the year I won the Obie Award at the Brooklyn Academy of Music we were forming a the first or second attempt at a national company, uh, a national theater company in America a repertory company and there was a wonderful a vocal coach there, but she hated my voice, told me I would ruin my voice. It would never work. It was bad for the theater. And yet it became one of my, what would you call it, a signature? 
comment of my because I'm listed as gravelly voiced or whatever the voice is, it's worked in my favor. But it, it can be done by and anyone can have this voice, men or women. Just do everything wrong you can physically to your throat, and you'll end up talking like me. What memories do you have of working on The Rocketeer? The Rocketeer was a very strange film for me. I was, I believe, offered Big Love, but my agents didn't want me to do it because it was Disney, and let's be honest, Disney doesn't pay a lot, uh, and they were not going to promise me a single card, that means my name alone on the credits, billing, and... But I wanted to do it. I, first of all, loved the script. I just loved the boys, um, Paul DeMaio and uh, Danny Wilson. And I, and I kind of just loved uh, the script and the character. It was one of those Hakeem Tamaroff roles. So I, was, I really wanted to do it. My agents were against it, but I said yes to it with very little money and no billing. The gift, of course, was financially that McDonald's came up with some kind of burger thing connected to the film, to Disney worked out, and they cut my, uh, one of my brief little, it's all part of the show, lines, into a commercial. So I made a crap load of money. <laughs> so I made more money than I would have if I had negotiated a deal or, or not done the film. Let's say I made a nice amount of money in, in commercial uh, uh, residuals, which I really had never done before. So that turned out to be a great experience. Now, when I get on the set, we're shooting up in Santa Maria, I believe it's called. There was a, an airport built. It was gorgeous. There were stands built. It was all about that a big sequence. Uh, it was an actual airport, uh, but it was all dressed by the film company and beautiful to look at. The photos I took of the morning, the mist, all of that stuff. But I walked onto the set and we had a full group of people. Now, this is when I found out who the cast was. Billy Campbell, the lead, had played a supporting role in Crime Story, so I knew Billy. Alan Arkin I'd done a movie with called Deadly Business years before. Al Arkin walks up to me. I remember the first day we were outside and says, I don't know what the hell this film's doing here. I said, just get the hell of, get the, the hell out of the way of the planes, and I guess that's it. And Arkin and I had some stuff together. I think Arkin is a genius actor. I've always been a great fan. And it was wonderful to see him again and have him recognize me as sort of a peer uh, in the way he treated me. I never think I'll be a peer with him in terms of uh, my talents. He is above and beyond. Ed Lauder, a great character man who I've admired for years I got to meet. And Terry O'Quinn played, um, uh, I think he's called Terry Quinn now. I'm not sure. But Terry O'Quinn played Howard Hughes. And Terry and I had been on Broadway with Faye Dunaway in, in a movie, in a play called Curse of an Aching Heart. Uh, we were actually, what do you call them, kind of room, uh, roommates, cellmates. We were both had the same dressing room. We were dressing room mates in, uh, in uh, New York on Broadway. So there was a great group all the way around, although Terry wasn't on the set at that time. And mostly what we did was actually live stuff. Uh, there were planes going over. Uh, there were special effects being done live. It, it, they weren't adding the effects of the Rocketeer uh, until post, and I had never seen computer-generated things 
like that. Joe Johnson was directing, and Joe was the uh, special effects Star Wars guy, the Spielberg boy, man. And he was a, and he was a, a lovely technical director. So the experience on the set in the place in Santa Maria, California, was spectacular. It was truly like walking onto a massive Hollywood set, but it was real because we had planes. We had biplanes flying. It was a joy. You said that you took photos when you would get there. Was that kind of your thing to do you document your shoots often? Yes, I have, I have lots of them. Unfortunately, I might have to go back now that I'm organizing things and have that stuff put on the disc because you can improve so much of the shots and focus and stuff like that. I've got wonderful shots of me and Billy, me and Alan Arkin, and just the set itself. I always tried to do some some photographing somewhere along the line, some photography if it was allowed without you know without people being offended. I never got any shots of Brando except walking away when I did the freshman. Uh, he was very anti-photo, um, so one was afraid to pull out a camera anywhere near him. But for the most part, I have some kind of a photographic record of most of the things I did. Very nice. I've seen, uh, I know some other actors that have done that, like um, Ryan McDowell used to always take photos when he was on set, and just seeing those behind-the-scenes photos. Oh, you know who else does? It's Jeff Bridges. He's got a, a very wide thing. He, wrote, he did a book uh, when we were doing Lebowski, that he gave all of the cast members a copy of, and he wrote um, uh, wrote in handwritten. I don't know whether that's published. I don't think it is, but it's an, it was a gift to us. Uh, photos throughout the shoot that he took. Of course, he misspelled my name, put an H in it. But I only worked with Jeff one night, and I I was just glad he put my spelled my last name right. He was a joy to work with. It's another Cohen experience. Yeah, what has it been like? I mean, you've been kind of with them almost through their whole career. How is really, that? No, no, no. Let's be honest. There, I was in the early part of it. I think by joining them in the third, and I made it through. I didn't do. Oh God. Uh, oh brother, where are they? I was fortunate enough to be in the man who wasn't there, but that was also not well received at all. So I was there. I would say for the first third. Uh, because I think they're in their second third now <laughs> uh, in what they're doing now. The funny part of what these guys was, that was, which was a real joy, was that during Miller's crossing, they talked to me about uh, Barton Fink in a very strange way. I don't think it was... It was called Barton Fink, but I was told about it. I was, of course, hoping to play the producer that Michael Lerner played, and instead they had written this part uh, for me, or said it was written to me in mind, uh, doing um, uh, uh, whatever the character's name was I played in that. Uh, Lou Breeze. Lou Breeze. But then... When I was on, the, I was doing The Crow, and they were doing Hudsucker and SVG, the cameo in Hudsucker. And when I went on the set, uh, Ethan said to me, well, how would you like to make a pass at Brad Pitt? And I said, please, that's my dream come true. <laughs> and he said, well, we've got something we're working on. It's called The Barbershop Movie, and there's a part for you in it. Well, it turned out years later, I did meet Brad Pitt, actually, because my, my life partner, Daryl Armbruster, uh, was in a group called the Dan Band, and Brad Pitt, uh, when he was with Jennifer Aniston, were fans of the Dan Band. So I got to meet him and all, and I was thinking, maybe I'd be working with him, maybe I'd get to make a pass. But as years went on, it turned out that Billy Bob was cast in that part, and the man who wasn't there. 
where I got to make a little pass to Billy Bob. And that ain't, that ain't, he, that was fun. And he's a lovely man. I knew him through, uh, well, I met him when he was with Angeline Jolie. My goodness, they all do interconnect, don't they? I, I want to tell you a story about Billy Bob, which was great. Here's how classy he was. I was rehearsing. Uh, we had to rehearse the scene, the scenes uh, in my bedroom uh, on the lot one day. It was a day that we were going to go to a screening that night. And uh, we worked all day, including figuring out how I would make a pass with him by winking and all these things. It was a, a wonderful day of work, trying to find out how we would do these scenes. And that night, we were invited to a screening. I believe it was intolerable cruelty, I believe it was. Um, and we all converged to support the Collins because they were involved uh, in that movie and at the Writers Guild. As the screening was over, uh, Billy Bob was there, and he met, I said, this is my boyfriend, Daryl Brewster, and uh, he and Angela Jolie were very, very polite to Daryl. But I went later in the night to get in my car, and Daryl was, I couldn't find Daryl. And he came up to me and said, do you know what just happened to me? Billy Bob pulled me aside and said to me, I had a full day working with your partner, John Polito, and it was one of the best acting days I've ever had in my life. If I never acted again, I would be happy at travel. I mean, this was, this was such a generous, sweet thing to do. I thought it was an amazing thing that Billy Bob Thornton did. I think he's an amazing man. That's real kindness. You know what I mean? When you go to the partner of the person and say, I'm right there. So should we get back to the Rocketeer? Yeah, sure. I wasn't sure how much more you had uh, to say about it, but I will take anything. I don't really have that much to say, except that it was such an interesting joy to run, to be part of. I was on yesterday, actually, on television, and I watched it again. I don't think the movie works. I feel something's missing in it, but I love what's there and what cast is there. There's a case, when you look at the character people in it, Eddie Jones and Margot Martindale, all of us are holding our own surrounding the center. I don't think the center works the way it should have been. I don't know why, but it's not a great film. I'm in a lot of films that I'm proud to be in that are not great films, but they're good films. You know, they're things that have lasted in one way or another. I, of course, would have loved Rocketeer to go on and on, and my twin my uh, Big Lowe's twin brother now runs the place, and I would play that part, too. I was hoping it would go on forever. Uh, and I'm sorry it didn't, but I'm very, very proud to be part of it. What are some of your favorite things that you've done over the years? Well, of course, all of the Cohen Brothers things are. Uh, I'm very, very proud of a performance I did playing a woman when Chris Isaac had a Showtime show. I, I was very proud of that. I love working with Seinfeld in the uh, Reverse People episode. I like the fact that that still hangs around. Um, I was truly uh, proud of two performances I did one year, uh, something with Danny Aiello, an independent film called uh, Stiffs, and I was doing it crossing over back and, back and forth with another film I was shooting at the same time called Big Nothing with uh, David Schwimmer, Simon Pegg, uh, and Alice uh, Eve, wonderful group of uh, actors. Uh, but that, neither one of those films worked. Some of the things I'm most proud of are not famous. But I'm proud to have done great work on occasion. I'm not a great actor. I'm a good actor. 
But I've done great work under the right conditions and with the right director and edited properly. Uh, and that's the gift. I, there was a thing that I heard an interview with Orson Welles in one of the many interviews he did with them. It's the Bogdanovich interviews, you may have heard those. And there are a whole series of interviews. And one of the things that happens is Orson Welles, is at, Bogdanovich is talking to him and says, they're talking about touch of it. And in the conversation, they're discussing Marlena Dietrich. Bogdanovich says, well, Dietrich was kind of a figure, but she was never a great actress, was she? And, and Wells disagreed. He said, so no, she's great. And he said, well, maybe she's done one or two great performances. And Wells said, you only need one great performance. And I thought that was a great way of putting it. As an artist, you really only hope for one great performance. And in film, God bless us, it's around. And it stays around. It's like one great painting, let's say. And I, and I do believe there's greatness that lasts. And all you want to do is touch it once in your life. And hopefully, as an actor, that, that depends, as an artist and an actor, depends on so many elements. The script, the way you're photographed, the way you're edited, the way you're directed. And when that comes out and something is great, and you're part of that. You've got to just get down on the ground and thank the gods. I hope I've been great once in my life. And I'd like to believe more than once. But I don't think it's a regular thing you can do. Like I said, you always bring something interesting to the table when you show up. So even, you know, stuff that people may not remember, like... I was a big fan of The Chronicle. I don't see that like being pulled back by Netflix these days, like X Files. No, and I really like The Chronicle. And you mentioned The Crow. That turned out to be a historical film as well, and an important one. I was very proud of that work. I love that character. I had worked on uh, my first Broadway job was uh, standing by, being the standby, in the first production of American Buffalo, written by David Mamet. And that production had John Savage and Ken McMillan, a great character actor, and the lead was Robert Duvall. Well, not only did I stand by, but I was assistant stage manager, and I began to run the show. So I watched their work every night. Ken McMillan, I thought, was a brilliant actor. And I always wanted to pay tribute, make a wave to him, artistic wave to him. And my artistic wave to him was that I based the whole character of The Crow on him. I made the same sweater that he wore from American Buffalo. Everything I did, a T-shirt and a sweater, not a great idea. When I found out I had to be killed with, with squibs because I, I got my chest burned in the, uh, in the bargain. But I did that as a tribute to Ken McMillan. He was always so good. I mean, things like Ragtime or Dune. Just, Dune, is, yeah. Dune is unbelievable. The excess is so wonderful. And we did an early film together, which is now released as called The Clairvoyant, uh, with a great bunch of character people in that one, that directed by Armand Mastriani. And that, that has not really been uh, uh, around much, but uh, he was wonderful in that as well. Uh, that was an early, early acting experience. I look gorgeous in that, but I don't think I'm acting very well. Often when I was younger, I looked good, but I was not a very good actor. I was a poseur, I felt. What are you working on these days? 
uh, I'm supposedly, um, hopefully, fingers crossed, uh, going back to Modern Family. I did an episode of that last year, and they're bringing me back to that. I'm a real fan of that show. And right now, that'll probably be the last job I ever do in my life. <laughs> you know, I'm one of those actors. Last year, I worked with Tim Burton in uh, Big Eyes uh, and did The Modern Family. And the year before, I had this wonderful national, international commercial with Robert Downey, who is a wonderful, wonderful actor and, and a great supporter of mine. And uh, I don't do much these days until they, you know what it is, I never want to ask. Oscar, and boy, those Oscar guys, they all want the television shows. So I'm not, uh, I'm up and running. I'm available, if anybody's out there wondering. And, uh, and I'm, I'm seeing what happens next. I, I'm getting to that weird age. I'm, what happened was when I reached, when I reached the mask, the face, the, the mustache, the real fat mustached guy from Miller's Crossing, it has kept me working for 20 years. But I now am 64, and though my mustache is still black, thanks to a touch of, uh, what is it called, touch of color, touch of men or something, uh, that I use one of those hair coloring things, as all us old character guys do. Anyway, um, I'm thinking of getting uh, stopping that and going gray to see whether, what Grandpa Polito is going to uh, uh, drum up. What, what are they going to do artistically with the, uh, this old mug in the next stage? And that's when I'm hoping to see what's going to happen next. Because um, I'm certainly a grandfather age. I actually am great, a great grandfather age. But uh, we'll see where they car where, where the business carries me next. Like every actor, we are dependent on being cast. And uh, I'm waiting to see what will happen next. Final thoughts, gentlemen. What do you think about this little film that um, I think is uh, kind of interesting? I mean, I, I, I enjoyed my time with it. What do you think? You know, for me, it's it's an interesting addition to the comic book movie conversation. Um, for me, it's one of my favorite, probably my favorite, just because it does something interesting with a genre that has now been, in my mind, a little bit played out. Uh, and, you know, a lot of that my, my be nostalgia a lot of that probably is nostalgia kind of growing up with the film but you know like like rob said it has a very distinct style to it i mean even the poster is an art deco style it's got some great actors a lot of great character actors some really memorable scenes and set pieces and i think that it needs to be mentioned in this conversation when people talk about the best comic book movies that have been made because a lot of the good ones get forgotten because they weren't made in the last eight, 10 years. And I think that the Rocketeer needs to be mentioned in this conversation because it's a really standout comic book film. I gave James Horner a lot of shit after he passed recently. And I think I still, I, I will still defend that. I was kind of pissing on his grave a little bit. I wasn't pissing on his grave, but I was saying that some of his scores were very similar from one score to another. We had talked when we did our Star Trek II episode that his score for Star Trek II 
very similar to some of the things that he did in Aliens. And there are moments in other films where, like, if I'm passing through a room and I hear a James Horner score, it is immediately recognizable. It's not as rote as, say, a Danny Elfman score is these days. You know, it's not the, you know, the singing chorus and the boop, 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 boop kind of music. But there's definitely a James Horner style. And I do have to say, though, that his score for The Rocketeer, probably one of his best scores, if not the best score. And it is so rousing, and it has this great recognizable theme. I would put it up there with some of the better themes as far as, like, a Superman or a Indiana Jones. This really has that kind of a feel to it. It is something that you can you know, immediately recognize if it's being played and it brings back that feeling and that sense of adventure that you get from this film. And it is one of these great, great films. And I don't want to say it's a great comic book movie because it's a great film period. It's based on a comic book period. And I don't think that we have to necessarily describe it as a comic book film, but it definitely has that feel and that fun and that adventure that you get from a really good comic book. And yeah, I'm very sad that it didn't hit when it came out in 91, but I think that hopefully enough time has passed now where people can go back and there isn't that stigma to Disney that there once was. There used to be such a big division between what was a Buena Vista film versus a Disney film, and having Disney on the front of this film and having it on the poster was basically, you know, kind of a death sentence a little bit. And nowadays, I mean, I'm not saying that Disney was doing poor financially, but it was marketed as a kid's movie. And yes, The Rocketeer is a kid's movie. Kids can watch it. It's as it is kid friendly, but it is one of those works where you don't have to be eight years old to enjoy it. You can come in as a forty-three year old person and enjoy this much as much as that eight year old. You're probably not gonna buy the lunchbox if you're forty-three, unless you're really super nerdy, but you're gonna get into this film. And I think also, like I said earlier, it helps if maybe you're a fan of at least the first two Indiana Jones films. Because <laughs> it it may give you a point of reference in some way if you've never read the comic books or you don't know anything else about it. Or you do have an interest in sort of those, I guess, sort of anachronistic uh, period films, as uh, Chris was saying earlier. All right, we're going to take one more break and play a preview for next week's show. Are you worried, Vetus? About myself? No. The girl? Perhaps. Oh. You're interested? Maybe. I thought so. Well, I'm not. Only spiritually. Spiritually. Tonight is the dark of the moon. And we shall gather and... You had better come, Vetus. The ceremony will interest you. Don't pretend, Hjalmar. There was nothing spiritual in your eyes when you looked at that girl. You planned to keep her here. Perhaps... I intend to let her go. Is that a challenge, Vetus? Yes, if you dare to fight it out alone. Do you dare play chess with me for her? Yes. I will even play you chess for her. Provided if I win, they are free to go. You won't win, Vetus. 
That's right. We're back with the first part of our black and blue double feature with Maitland McDonough. The next two weeks, we'll be discussing, ready, the black cat and blue collar. See, we're creative around here at the Projection Booth. Now, before we get going, I want to thank this week's special guest co-host, Mr. Chris Stashew. Now, Chris, what are the big things happening over at the Culture Cast, and what can folks expect? Right now, we're in the middle of Page to Screen Month, where we're talking about movies that are adaptations of books. And uh, watching some good movies, watching some bad movies so far. Uh, And next month, I'm really excited because we're going to be talking about musicals. And we have a really great interview uh, lined up. And this is an exclusive for you guys. Uh, We're going to be talking to Jack Black about uh, Tenacious D and the Pick of Destiny. The Jack Black, not some other guy named Jack Black. So that will be on the tail end of the month, towards the end of September. Uh, We're going to be talking about Tenacious D the pick of destiny and our guest co-host for that episode is uh leaf tilden who played donatello in teenage ninja turtles one and two he was the actor in the suit in the donatello suit so it's going to be a really uh, jam-packed podcast with leaf tilden and the interview with jack black so it's going to be it's going to be a good time well thanks again chris it's always a pleasure talking to you folks be sure to check out our website projection-booth.com for links over to culture shocked and the culture cast while you're at it While you're on our website, you can leave us some feedback. Link on over to our Facebook, Twitter, or iTunes pages. And before we forget, we are taking feedback for yet another one of our Ego Fest shows. This is Ego Fest 3. We've got a cutoff date of August 26th. So send us emails, MP3s, or drop us a voicemail over at our number, 734-666-0800. And we'll include it as part of the show. If you miss the cutoff, you can always be in the next show. But it might not be as fresh and relevant. You know, if you are ripping on us about Alien 3, that might be another six to eight months before you do another Ego show. And by then, we will have pissed you off about something else, I am positive. So, if you have those burning questions, really want to know, are we truly a pants-free podcast? Let us know. Send us your emails. Send us your MP3s if you want them played on the air, or just leave us a voicemail, 734-666-0800. Just ask, and we'll do our best to make sure that we answer your questions on our EgoFest 3. So until then, it is time to rock it, man. Pack my bags. Last night, pre-flight, zero hour, 9 a.m. And I'm going to be high. As a kite by then. miss the earth so much. I miss my wife. It's lonely out in space. On such a The touchdown brings me back again to find I'm not the man they think I am back home. Oh, no, 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 I'm a rocket man. 
rocket man Burning out his fuse out here alone I think it's gonna be a long, long time Till Touchdown bring me round again and find I'm not the man they think I am at home Oh, no, no, no I'm a rocket man Rocket man Burning out his fuse out here alone Mars ain't the kind of place to raise a kid In fact, it's cold as hell And there's no one there to raise them If you did And all this science I don't understand just a job. Five days a week. Rocket man. A rocket man. And I think it's going to be a long, long time. The touchdown brings me around again to find I'm not the man they think I am at home. Oh no. No, no, I'm a rocket man, rocket man, burning out his fumes out here, alone. And I think it's gonna be a long, long time, the touchdown brings me around again to find I'm not the man they think I am at home. Oh, no, no, I'm a rocket man. Rocket man, burning out his fuse out here alone. And I think it's gonna be a long, long time. And I think it's gonna be a long, long time. And I think it's gonna be a long, long time. And I think it's gonna be And I think it's going to be long, long time. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening Christopher Media let's make some noise uh, Chief it says here you need to take a 40 hour training course and get certified before you can legally I'm not the police anymore I'm the sky police uh, ah, ah, okay okay I think I got it uh, uh, oh. Now I got it. I got it. <laughs>